You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Simon. And that's Mark instead of Lee. And well, there are two things that I need to say at the start of this podcast. And one of those things is that I've forgotten what the other thing is. So I'll move straight on to the first thing. <laughs> and it is that these two guys, I have convened us here without giving you either of you a single clue as to what we're going to be talking about, have I? No. Oh, and the other thing is. This came in the post this morning, and I've told you both to expect this, and in fact, I've probably bigged it up slightly too much. Probably, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to get your reactions to this live on the podcast. Is it a photo? What have you taken a picture of? Oh, do you want to guess what this might be? <laughs> well, there's, a, a, there's a, a stiff <laughs> A4 envelope yes. in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> Which suggests I think, some kind of artwork. Oh, Mark's going to make a guess. I think Donald Trump has finally got a hold of Barack Obama's birth certificate and sent it to JR. I received this in the post this morning, forwarded from the Starburst magazine oh. offices. Oh. So somebody had obviously sent this into the Starburst magazine offices mm-hmm. and they had forwarded it on to me. Hate mail? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that cat you've been looking for, is it? It's very flat if it is. Mm. It's Flat Stanley's cat. Poor kitty. Oh, <clears throat> Flat Stanley. Right. I Right. When I opened this, I thought, oh, that's somebody pulling my leg. And then I thought, well, hang on. What if it's genuine? So I went home and I checked, and it's genuine. Are you two ready for this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, here we go. No. No. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh. Does that make you feel like crap? That made me walk around all day with a big grin on my face, <laughs> something I haven't done for years. Mark, would you like to say what the picture is? Uh, well, it's from Attack of the Cybermen. You've got the cyber controller. Well, I think that's enough that it's from Attack Cyberman. of the Cybermen. Yes, okay. Yes. Simon, would you like to read out what it says at the bottom in black felt-tip pen? Yes, yes. Um, it says, to my friend JR. Do I say the name? Of course. Eric Sayward. Yes, I received in the post this morning a signed picture by Eric Sayward from mm. Attack of the Cybermen. Wow. That's <clears throat> in. That was quite a shock, mm. <laughs> to say the least. It's definitely Mr. Sayward. I've checked it out and it all matches up. Oh, wow. You should give him a big thank you on the air. I think kudos. Yes. Oh, I've emailed him to say thank you. Oh. Well, thank you, Eric, anyway. Thank you if you're listening. <clears throat> 
Uh, it's made his day. Good man. It did make my day. He did. You had an extra spring in your step as you walked in the door, Joe. I tell you what, and given some of the things I've obviously said on this podcast and written in the magazine, I think that shows what a good-natured bloke he is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something I've been experiencing on um, on the internet. Actually, I managed to join a couple of forums. I won't say which ones they are. But um, one that. of them's a Barbie forum, and the other yes. one's a Cindy forum, <laughs> and you can imagine no, the fighting that goes on there. They are actually both Doctor Who forums, but they run in such a way that everyone's really respectful, and regardless of every now and again, it gets a little bit heated where somebody get, takes something a little bit personally, and then but everyone kind of dampens down the fire, and and it, you can have completely opposing opinions and still talk about them. Why wouldn't you say what the forums are then? Um, Seeing as you've recommended them, so come on, spill the beans. One of oh, them no, because they're invitation Bobby only. That's why. Oh, oh, I see. Are they actual forums or are they on Facebook? They're on Facebook. Yeah. So, so JR forums, and I aren't uh, cool enough so to be invited. Technically, so yeah, you, are, you are both in them. Oh. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. But it's not saying, oh, we're members and you're not. It's not like that. But it, it, it just it goes is. To sh- is it? That is what I'm saying. Are you talking about the Ark in space and journey to the center of the TARDIS? I am. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'm okay. only on one of it, so... Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Really? Which yeah. one? The Ark in Space. Oh, that means you're missing out on all the voting on Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. Oh, well, that's all right, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? There's, um... Basically, in these... Uh, they've sure done... Colin Baker's desperate to join that one. They did a... <laughs> they did a vote. Yeah, now, now, Mark. There'll be no more of that. <laughs> no, it's quite good, because the ones that don't get voted for get long forgotten. Much no. earlier on in the process, oh. so there's never a okay. a rundown of who came last or anything mm. like that. But um... <laughs> do we have to? What? Um... Speaking of which, mm. other things that have been going on in the news, and seen as Lee's not here, I don't need to tell anybody who's put their fingers in there. Is Reese Shearsmith in mm. episode nine, which mm. Mark written Gatiss... by Mark Gatiss? Who would have guessed it, eh? Yeah, <laughs> but that Mark Gatiss is described as particularly scary and quite singular. I don't know what the exact quote is, but mm. he said there's never been an episode like it before. Good. Do you know? Do you know what? It just struck me as I was driving up here, knowing that I was going to bring this up only briefly. There's never been an episode like it in Doctor Who before. Mark mm. Gatiss is well into his sort of. Um, portmanteau horror movies mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if the reason there's never been an episode like it in Doctor Who before is because the Doctor's not in it at all. Well, we've had um, Mission to the Unknown, haven't we? Okay, in modern Doctor Who, then, mm. let's say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I had the Daleks in. This could be a Doctor Who episode in which there is no one and nothing from the world of Doctor Who. Mm. Better be good, then. No uh, pressure, Mark. I'm not predicting that. I'm just mm. saying I wouldn't be surprised if they were to run something like that past us. Mm. But, you know, the reason I brought it up... Sorry, go on, Simon. No, I was going to say, um, what's lovely is that obviously Mark Gatiss's episodes I've never really looked forward to. Um, I had an email they... from him yesterday <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. This is the... Hi, Mark. No, yeah, that's, that's come out wrong. I always look, I look forward to him doing... I, I oh. want him to do an episode that I love, and then he did with the Crimson Horror. Yeah. And... Now every episode you want to be, you want it to be not another Crimson Horror. But he's some... one of those sorts of people who you know he's a fan, you know he loves the show, and you want him to do well. And in my experience, the way I've 
interpreted his his work as it can be a bit hit and miss. But when he hits, it's really good. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But then when he misses, it's not for the want of having the right reasons. Mm. Like, for example, The Idiot's Lantern. Yeah. I thought that was a perfectly good idea for a story. Mm. And although I have problems with his scripting of human beings, mm. <laughs> well, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I've said this mean, many yeah, times. Yeah, I yeah. find his, I find the way his scenes play out are more like mm. scenes from a, a sketch comedy mm-hmm. in that mm. they start in a certain place and yeah. they end in a certain place yeah. and it's entirely self-contained, mm-hmm. which can make his episodes feel a bit bitty. Fragmented. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Bitty. Yeah. Yeah, that's the wrong one. Sometimes. But Wilder, so, and that means, but that's fragmented not necessarily in a plot sense, mm. but in a sense of the human beings. Yeah. Because if you feel that every character in it has had an entire development in every single scene, it becomes harder to see their development across the episode. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I really like Night Terrors, and I, I think I'm in the minority on that, but I think that was a particularly <clears throat> good episode. Yes, that was a good episode. Mm. Robin of Sherwood, let's face it, was a great... Robot. Yeah. Mm. No, what did I say? Robin. Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Usually we say Robert. (laughs) It was a great episode. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, the problem with that episode was where it came and who the Doctor was. Mm. Because third episode into that series, it didn't fit. I think it's the right doctor, but yeah, no, probably possibly the wrong place in his run. No, I think the wrong doctor because I think give that that dialogue to Matt Smith or David Tennant, they would have played it so differently that that it would have still worked, but it wouldn't have seemed because if you give that negative amount of dialogue to Mm. a doctor who's already shown himself to be quite a negative doctor, it just makes him come across as a really negative person. Mm. Whereas if you give negative dialogue to a up doctor then that actor can spin that dialogue and bring something out of it that's neither up nor negative, but there's mm, yeah, somewhere in between. Were you saying the other day, Simon, that that's the only one that your kids have seen from that, that series? Yeah. yeah. Mm. What about In the Forest of the Night? I really wanted to go into Billy Joel then. Um, <laughs> that's Lee's not here, so we can't. No, no. we can't. Um, Me and yeah, no, I, I could no, try it, couldn't no, I? No. I could give it a go. I don't know what they make of it. <clears throat> yeah, but you know kids you can never predict what they're going to find scary no you could show them listen and they could sit through it quite happily and then you show them in the forest of the night and they find it terrifying you mm. just never know mm. anyway moving on from Reese. oh the one thing the reason I brought that up I almost mm. forgot Reese Shearsmith I'm just you must have Mark you've at least heard last week's Radio Free Scaro. Stephen was rattling on about oh, Rishi Smith's in it, so the second Doctor and David Tennant was in Cardiff, so it'll be the second Doctor oh, and the no. tenth Doctor. Oh, no. They're all no, playing no, the Rani. No. I don't know. He wasn't being serious. <laughs> oh, yeah. good. He was just he was just letting his <laughs> he was letting his imagination run away was, from that him. That was within character. Yeah. No, no, no. no. He, um, he was just letting his imagination run away from him. Yeah, it's and been a lot having of that, a bit though, of fun. It? Yeah. Wasn't Russell T in Cardiff as well? There was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah, didn't yeah. kind of include that. It was quite funny. They sort of mm. said, oh, Tenth Doctor must be in it. And then you're thinking, what, what Russell T Davis is just going to stand around watching. Mm. But you know what I was thinking? You know the film Sleuth? Yes. Michael Caine and 
Laurence Olivier, mm -hmm. where they each play a succession of different characters who all turn out to be the same two people. Mm -hmm. Rishi Smith, what's he most famous for? Yeah. So you do mm -hmm. not a version of the story of Sleuth, but you do a story within which there can be a character who appears as a variety of different, oh, as being be Doctor Who, yes. monsters. Mm. And so Rhys Shearsmith is in it as, and there'd be new things. There'd be things where he gets to play to his strengths. But do you know what I mean? If there was a Dalek and a Cyberman and a Zygon and an Ice Warrior, and they were all Rhys Shearsmith. Mm. You know mm. what I'm saying? Mm. This could be an opportunity for Reese Shearsmith to... Bring back Mr... Was his name Mr. Pufflewick? Pufflewick. Pufflewick, yes. But no, to bring out his League of Gentlemen for Doctor Who. Mm. Yes. Because mm. cause I don't think he's... I don't think he's particularly good at straight acting, but I think he's exceptionally good at... I don't know what you'd call it, parodical acting. Mm. I think he's very, very good at that kind of oh, thing. Oh, did you see him in Car Share? My God, that was good. Have you watched Cars yet? Is no. that the one with... Yeah, I've seen some of it. I didn't see an episode with him in, so I obviously oh. didn't see that one. It's one of the last ones, I think. Yeah, very good. I saw most, I saw bits of all of them, I think. I obviously just didn't see the bit with him. Mm. It's another one of those series you need to invest in, watching from the start, mm. and then... <clears throat> but i tell you what he's exceptional in, Inside Number 9. Yes, yes. I haven't seen that either. I think one of the few things I've seen him in is Spaced. Oh, really? In a, in a relatively small part. Mm. You must have seen League of Gentlemen. No, didn't really appeal to my sense of humour. Oh, you should give it a try because it's mm. not what you think. It's one of those series, there are so many things like this where you see the trailers and you just think, oh God, that looks absolutely appalling. It's true, actually. Uh, um, the IT the crowd. Briefly. Mm, the IT crowd, um, the ads for that made it look really appalling. Um, and it was. I, no, I came back to it later and I really liked it. Gavin and Stacey, the trailers for mm. that just made it look hideous. And yeah, I caught I've yet the pennies yet to drop with me with Gavin and Stacey. Mm. Oh, I saw the first episode and I absolutely fell in love with it. Mm. So I'm not saying it, it's not funny. I'm just saying it hasn't. Oh, not because the funny. It is funny, but it's because of the characters. Mm. It's all about Uncle Bryn for you, isn't it? No, he was the one thing in it that I found didn't ring true. Actually, mm. he was too. Uh, I thought the lines they gave him were too obvious. Mm. Bit too on the nose. Yeah, everybody else was just subtle enough mm. that he, although they were all being very funny, you could accept that there the was a human next being. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, there was some. Gr <laughs> anyway, shall we anyway, move on yeah, to a subject? <laughs> right. Well, no. Before we move on to a subject, okay. Here's the other piece of news, nothing to do with Colin Baker, that's been all over the internet this week. The story that was in Private Eye. Oh, yes. Ah, yeah. In which they're saying there'll be no full series of Doctor Who in 2016 on mm. account of the fact that Sherlock is going to be around instead. Okay. Which actually would mean that there'd be no Doctor Who or Sherlock in 2016 and they'd both be on in 2017. Mm, yeah. Well, actually, I've got a spreadsheet that I've brought. <clears throat> Because I think it's worth looking at this in detail and working out. Because this rumour is going to hang around until somebody makes an announcement You've about been spending it. a lot of time with Stephen Schapansky, haven't you? Yeah. He loves his <laughs> spreadsheets. Me and... Well, don't tell Erica, but me and Stephen have got a thing going on. It's mm. <clears throat> right, she never listens to this anyway, so it's fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the rumours come out, right, and everybody's like... About you and Stephen? No, about... 
Doctor Who having its production postponed so uh, that Sherlock yeah. can be slotted in instead. Yeah. And on the face of it, you think, why would that need to happen? Because mm-hmm. Sherlock was supposed to film last year, mm-hmm. but it's been put off because the availability of the actors who yeah. both like they've been filming the Christmas special, haven't they? <clears throat> well, they're both. But the point is, they're both big movie actors mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So they're not going to just drop, you know, Lord of the Rings. What's it called? The Hobbit Part Three or yeah. Star Trek? Such a valid point, isn't it? <clears throat> almost like everyone just sits around sitting on their hands while Stephen Moffat writes stuff. Well, this is it. If it was due to film last year, not mm-hmm. even this year, but I think it was due to film in 2014. So mm. obviously the scripts, even if they're not final draft finished, the scripts must be more mm. or less ready to go. Yeah. So it's not this. See, this is the thing. Whenever a problem comes up, everybody looks at Stephen Moffat and says, that's the guy to blame. Mm. Mm. But that guy is not directing, line producing, (laughs) executive producing every last decision. Mm. So if a decision has been made to postpone production of Doctor Who in order to produce Sherlock in its slot, and I'll tell you in a reason uh, i'll tell you in a minute why i think that's the case then it's not stephen moffat who's made that decision stephen moffat might have said to somebody at the bbc look if you want to do that this is probably the easiest way to facilitate that but he's not the guy who signed on the dotted line and postponed doctor who right Mm. so somebody else has done that if indeed that is the case that that has happened which i think is probably the case because <clears throat> Sherlock and Doctor Who, they're both expensive to make. Mm. They're both made in the same building, right? Yeah. In Cardiff. The, uh, what's it called? Rothlock. Rothlock. Along with a bunch of other programs that are also made in Rothlock, including Casualty. Yep. Is that still there? Yeah. Yeah. And a bunch of other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Rothlock is only so big. And presumably, other than the standing sets, the TARDIS set, and I don't know whether it is, but you'd imagine it is, 221B Baker Street is probably also a standing set. Mm. I don't suppose it necessarily needs to be the way the TARDIS is, but that's by the by. If, if say, I'm going to come up with a random number, four. If there are four separate studio sections in mm-hmm. Rove Lock and Casualty as one, all year round. Yeah. Doctor Who has one for nine months of the year and the other three months are free for something else. And say there's Program X and Program I Y. Think, I don't think they dismantle it, do they? Because they do the tours and everything like that for the time they're not filming. Yeah, mm. I'm not talking about the TARDIS set. I'm talking about sets for oh, I see. the Sorry. rest of the episodes. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, I don't know, whatever. Build other buildings. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the thing I'm saying is, presumably... A lot of this stuff is booked into that building, not just months, but years in advance. Mm. So if you're going to bring in something like Sherlock, you can't just tell everybody in the building to drop what they're doing because Sherlock's taken over for three months. You have to evict somebody. Now, you could evict. Say there's a program. I don't know because I don't know what's made there. But say there's a program relatively cheap, like Casualty, but that only films for three months of the year. Effectively, you could turf out Casualty for three months. You know, this other program, not Casualty, this Mm. other program Mm. for three months. Mm. But if that's a relatively cheap program, they've probably only got a couple of sets. And by turfing them out, you're not really solving your problem because you probably need twice as much room for Sherlock. 
or whatever. What I'm saying is, because of how much money you're saving in not making Doctor Who and therefore spending in order to make Sherlock, mm. and because you have to turf somebody out, it makes sense to me to postpone Doctor Who for three months while you film Sherlock, which would either put Doctor Who starting sort of June-July time, which means you may get a few episodes before the end of 2016. Yeah. But I think if they're starting that late, it makes sense to have the whole series go out in the spring of 2017. Or even sp- split across spring and autumn of 2017. Would you what still I'm saying is, a Christmas special as well? Then? Yeah, no, what I'm yeah. saying is, if this happens, I don't think they'll go in and make two months worth of Doctor Who in mm. January and February mm. and then stop for Sherlock. I think they'll put the whole lot back block. until July, mm. do a Christmas special first, and all will get in. Because it's too late now unless this decision was taken months ago and we don't know about it it's too late to suddenly say okay we could have an easter special right come up with an idea for the easter special write a script for the easter special find a cast for the easter special make sets for the design and make sets design and make costumes design (laughs) and make monsters for the easter special that's not the kind of thing you can do at the drop of a hat so if this is true I can't see there being an mm. Easter special. No. I think 2016 will just be Christmas special, mm-hmm. and then 2017 you'll have the whole lot. Mm. Do you remember back in 2012, though? I said, and this wasn't what I had in mind at the time, I said back in 2012, when we had that split season across mm-hmm. 12 and 13, yeah. I said I could imagine Doctor Who being three seasons across four years cyclically going forwards from that point Mm -hmm. because it made sense to me that that was the best way to keep it going but to keep it fresh Mm. yeah Mm. and actually that's happened by accident Mm. if this is true the thing isn't it you don't want your favorite show spread thinly Mm. you want it done properly you want them to take their time surely it's not such a it's not a biggie is it i know it's i mean in an ideal world i would always want my 12 or 13 episodes in a constant weekly run. Yeah. But if it meant that the quality stayed the same and it was to the similar sort of standards and the only way you could do that was to break it into two separate halves of a season, then I'd happily take that. Well, put it this way, during Russell T. Davis's four years, Mm. Series 3 and Series 4 definitely suffered from Mm. being on a production cycle. Mm. I think so. The quality of the episodes in those two series was definitely lower Patchy. than happy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, don't get some me wrong, there were some brilliant there. episodes. Yeah. But by the time you get to something like Midnight, mm. that's the one that sticks out. Yeah. Rather than the poor episodes mm. being the ones that stick out mm. like they were in the first year and the and, and to a certain degree in the second year. Mm. But then you look at Peter Capaldi's first year and I don't think there are any poor episodes in that year and that's what having a year off does for you Mm -hmm. it allows you to recharge your batteries it's all a little bit of a grey area as well the BBC as well isn't it we do not know what's going on there well we know that they've guaranteed pretty much Doctor Who till 2020 yeah Mm. so this presumably wasn't part of that plan but this can be folded into that plan, and oh, maybe yeah, that no, plan therefore goes to twenty twenty one or something. Usually, with these things and these timings, it's all designed to kind of protect the show anyway and protect its standards. So, yeah. Well, the thing about Doctor Who is, and I'm not entirely sure this is true, but a lot of people have said it. It makes more money for the BBC than it costs them to make. Mm. 
So even if things got so disastrously bad yeah. for the BBC that they were having to cut back in all sorts of other departments, you would think that something like Doctor Who would be saved. And here's another thing about it. People are say, oh, Russell T. Davis was doing 13 episodes, 14 episodes of Doctor mm -hmm. Who a year and the Sarah Jane Adventures, and he was running Torchwood, and he was doing all this, that, and the other. Look, in my job, you know, there's 150 postmen in our office. Mm -hmm. We do not all walk at the same speed mm -hmm. as one another. No. Some people walk faster, some people walk slower, some people walk in the middle. Russell T. Davis is a fast walker. Stephen Moffat, I don't think he's in the slow lane, but he's obviously not in the same part of the fast lane as Russell T. Davis is. Mm -hmm. If he writes slower, then so be it. Mm. Expect less of him rather than complaining about mm. the fact that he's not walking as fast as the other guy who's gone off ahead of him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. It's ridiculous to assume that a new writer coming in and taking over the show would be capable of exactly the same things as the guy who preceded him. There's very few obvious candidates to come in if Stephen Moffat decided to call it a day. No. Very few. <clears throat> well, there was that rumour about Anthony Horowitz. Yeah. And I, while I wouldn't give the rumour credence, mm. I, Anthony Horowitz is the kind of person I could see the BBC saying, mm. look, because the showrunner... Let's face it, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis were not getting paid the same <laughs> salary mm. as, you know, a regular TV producer. Yeah. They're being paid to oversee the biggest show on television, mm. pretty much. Yeah. They're getting paid nice money. Stephen mm. Moffat turned down a regular writing gig for Steven Spielberg yeah. to take this job. Mm. You don't do that if they're offering you peanuts. And while he didn't obviously do it for the money and mm. the Steven Spielberg gig would have got him more money, yeah. by the same token, he's not going home. He's not know. scratching around in the back of the sofa for a couple exactly. of Exactly. So somebody like Anthony Horowitz, who's already made mm. quite enough money to sustain him mm. and his family after his death. And, you know, let's hope that's not for another 50 years. Yeah, but, so. So Anthony Horowitz <laughs> is not going to work for peanuts. No. But by the same token... The BBC could afford to make him a decent enough offer that he would at the very least consider it. And he does children's and he does grown-up and he does episodic television. Yeah. He knows how it works. He, he doesn't need to be a Doctor Who fan. He'd be able to come in and do the mm. job. And he works in television in the 21st century. Even if he's not a Doctor Who fan, mm. he watches Doctor I Who. I love his Sherlock Holmes novels. I think they're really <clears> good. He's halfway there already. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So there you go. Anthony Horowitz is definitely a contender. Mm. And that's one of the few names that actually has been mentioned in any capacity with it that says to me, yeah, okay, I could actually see that being the case. Mm. Well, an integrity goes with the name as well, isn't it? I think mm. the, the worry for me, probably it's misfounded, is with the, the way that... Um, politics is working in this country I can see corners being cut and more pressure being put on the BBC to justify paying these sorts of salaries to people of quality like Horowitz well that's two things about that one it's ridiculous mm. especially in the under a capitalist government, well, the law the of thing. supply and demand <laughs> states that you pay yeah. for what you get. I'm not arguing that it's not ridiculous, but it's just... 
But the other thing is, the BBC are well aware of what's going on mm. and they are making movements to protect themselves. Mm. We know already to, uh, BBC Studios that they've set up. Yeah. I was that listening is. to 42 to Doomsday relatively recently and they had uh, David Kitchen on as a guest. Mm. He writes into the show now and again and he was trying to convince them that the BBC is better off with a Conservative government and that they make better programmes with a Conservative government. It's true. Mm, I'm not convinced. No, 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 no. It's they, make, true. they make good programmes in spite of a Conservative mm. government. No, 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 no. They That's don't. How I no, 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 no. No, all art is better under a Conservative government because the artist has something to feel angry about and he has a point that's to prove. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. That's, mm. So that's not in spite of, that's because of. Oh, okay. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, but oh yeah, no. I yeah, don't think that was. His and it take doesn't. On it, it doesn't. No, it wasn't. He was. <laughs> he was just pointing out that if you look uh, historically the yeah, over the stories. fifty no, the years comedy, of the program, young ones, the better periods of the program have oh, yeah. come. But you know, even if you are not railing against the government of the day, ostentatiously, mm. the government of the day will inform your artistic decisions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things they pointed out was Hinchcliffe and Holmes happened, well, at the tail end of the Conservative government, mm. mm-hmm. before the Labour government that gave us Horns of Nymon. Hey, that's a great story. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this, and, and obviously the poetry thing happened so, during this Conservative um, your, government. Your favourite era during the whole of the classic series of Doctor Who was under a Tory government, wasn't it? The, the 1980s. <clears throat> no. Oh. Well, then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but David Kitchens might have been. Yes. Well, that was his, their own. That was his point, yeah. is what I'm saying. Mm, mm. But, but you know, he was making that almost as a joke. Yeah. But I think that's a very valid reason. Mm. If you've got a government you're happy with, then yeah. to a certain degree in your artistic life, you will be a content person and mm. you won't be striving in the same way as you would if there's a government that you're unhappy with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's why the Blue Box podcast has been so great for the last six years. <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> right, this episode's only half an hour old. Shall I actually reveal what our topic for the tonight is? Yeah, go on then. <laughs> Send me a signed photo. No, that is very, very cool. That's like, do you know what? That's I think you should send him one back. Oh, oh. Uh, read it okay. out if you like. Hiatuses and split seasons. On account of what I was just saying about the news piece, mm. it struck me because we didn't have a plan of what to talk about tonight. It struck me this might actually be an interesting topic, mm. although we've obviously gone over most of this anyway. Mm-hmm. at various times due to the fact that we've reviewed the split yeah. seasons mm-hmm. I thought it might actually be an interesting topic to talk about the split seasons in and of themselves mm. not necessarily the reasons why they happened but I think we should go into that at least a little bit insofar mm. as we can but whether they worked and not just whether they worked but what artistically has been put into it. the most obvious one it's 7A and 7B. Mm. Amy and Rory leave in 7A. Clara joins in 7B. Yeah. It's obvious there what the split is. Series 6, on the other hand, is also split. What's the split there? 
what's the artistic split there? Mm. Does it work? Mm. This is what I thought we should get into. Are you both happy to talk about that then, since I've sprung it on you? Well, well, yeah. I told you it was something that didn't need homework. (laughs) In your opinion. You're very funny. Mm. But look, there, underneath, I put the spreadsheet. I tell you what, let's do... I'll go through this spreadsheet first before we get into actually talking about ages. Look, I looked up. Are you when, sure it's not a high tie? Um, it would be if you were pluralizing it in Greek, but I'm pluralizing <laughs> it in English. <clears throat> That's JR, that is. Yeah. It's probably Latin anyway. I don't know the difference. Mm. Is it? I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, well, thanks for helping me out, guys. That's Maybe right. you should have done your homework after all. <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only uh, Latin I know is nil, nil satis nisi optimum. Meo culpa. Meo maxima culpa. Oh, yeah. he's completely to blame. Uh, oh, did you want me to say something in Latin or Greek? Yeah, go on. Um, no, I, I, I'll say something in Latin or Greek later on, once I've had the time to uh, go to the toilet. The only reason I listen to French football is to make myself sound intelligent. Mm-hmm. And you know what? <laughs> no, it doesn't work. Um, I looked up that since Stephen Moffat's been in charge of Doctor Who, which is roughly speaking when Sherlock has been in production, mm-hmm. I looked up when either of them were in production and whether they overlapped. Because prior to what I said at the start or earlier on mm-hmm. about you know Sherlock needing to bump something because... Suddenly the dates had become available, so it wasn't pre-booked in like 18 months in advance, as they would do with something like Doctor Who or, you know, Casualty or whatever. But I wanted to look and see if historically the uh, production schedules of either of the programme had ever overlapped. And here's the thing. Series 5 of Doctor Who was in production until June 2010, and Series 6 of Doctor Who didn't go into production till April of 2011. No, 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 March of 2010 and September of 2010. And Sherlock was uh, in production between April and August of 2010. Mm. So in other words, they did... I was looking at the wrong line of the sheet there. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, Sherlock was actually in production in between Series 5 and Series 6 of Doctor Mm. Who. And then again... Series 6 of Doctor Who finishes at the end of April 2011. Mm. Series 7 of Doctor Who starts in September of 2012, uh, in February of 2012. And Sherlock is... Oh, what am I looking at? I'm glad you did the spreadsheet, JR, because it makes it so much clearer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> know what I'm saying. But if you look... <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. I... I uh, I should I should put this mug of tea down and concentrate on What's the piece your bloody of paper. point, JR? What's I'm trying to get to the end of this mug before that last <laughs> mouthful of tea goes cold. All right, here I'm doing it. JR is drinking his cup of tea. Well, Simon's got these ridiculously shaped mugs that makes the last mouthful difficult to get out. You just spread your lips over them. Okay, let's not go through the dates that boring. The point being, mm. Sherlock. Has always slotted into that gap. Has always slotted into the gap between seasons of Doctor mm. Who in terms of when the production lies. Mm. Now, I'm not saying there's absolutely no overlap whatsoever. Mm. A few days here, a couple of weeks there. But generally speaking, that's the way the pattern's been. Doctor mm. Who, then Sherlock, and Doctor Who, then Sherlock. Obviously, there's the whole writing process. Well, the writing process is different because, mm. 
you know, you can bank scripts. Mm. If, for example, you know, if Doctor Who was due to go into production in August, say, you know, later this month, Mm -hmm. but then got put back till January, those scripts would still have been written for August, so you'd just hold on to the scripts. What I'm thinking is, you know, if they've got... If they've got the slot there for Sherlock to um, begin recording after Doctor Who finishes, Moffat is still going to be sort of finessing those scripts and shaping them to make sure they're absolutely spot on before they start the filming. So although there's no clash in the actual recording, there's still that kind oh, of thing be a lot of, of overlap know, in spinning terms. plates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Still but then a professional writer. That, that they do that all the time. They yeah. do. And not only that, actually, spinning plates as a writer helps. Because mm. if you are going to spend... If you were to spend eight solid months writing Doctor Who, after four of those months, you'd be climbing the walls. Mm. But if you can spend two months writing Doctor Who and then a month writing Sherlock mm-hmm. and then two months writing Doctor Who... Writing the Sherlock is a break from Doctor Who. Particularly for those two, I'm sure they probably inform each other as well, don't they? Yeah. Sort of things that you can bounce off. Right, there is one one exception to this case, Mm -hmm. and that is this year's winter special of Sherlock, Mm -hmm. which went into production the day before Series 8 of Doctor Who went into production. Mm. No, 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 the day before Series 9 of Doctor Who went into production. Yeah. Which is, where are we? Somewhere on the sheet here. Mm-hmm. No, in fact, they went into production on the same day. Right. So what I'm saying is the winter special that's going out this year of Sherlock mm-hmm. was recording at exactly the same time as Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So that is proof that if you organise and book these things in advance, it's possible to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which I'm saying is given the lie to all the people who say, Oh, Stephen Moffat can't do two things at once. <laughs> <laughs> he can do two things at once. He's perfectly capable. Not only that, I mean... Um, He's perfectly capable of swigging his tea while holding his penis <laughs> as he takes a little pee. Oh, what a lovely analogy. Oh, well, he's a man. Yeah, right. Oh, well, can't not, do two things at on. once. Um, yeah, obviously <clears> with Sherlock, it's, it's a collaborative thing. I mean, obviously with Doctor Who is as well, but it's very much signposted as Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss as a dual... Mm. Creations and I don't know. Yeah, kind of I'd say looking at the episodes, I think Stephen Moffat is taking a greater responsibility, mm. which is yeah, I don't think he'd ever say it himself. And of course, you've got the virtues as the sort of production company. Yeah. Well, this is the other thing. You are going to take up a lot of slack, aren't they? When you can't be there, thing, without diverting us onto a different track. Because mm. that's down compl- the line. Yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah, because that's a completely different thing from Hartswood. Hartswood is what makes Sherlock. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking in the future, though. Worth bearing in mind, that bad wolf thing sitting there waiting. Uh, yeah, that was also... Was that brought up on Radio Free Scar or was somewhere that I've listened to? Oh, really? It was suggesting something similar. I don't think it can have been Radio yeah, Free Scar. point where the BBC... Yeah, no, it doesn't couldn't... work like that. I mean, that's, okay. that's, on the, that's on the outer limits of possibility. Mm. But it's... It's not... Oh, obviously, further, much <clears throat> further down the line. But I mean, if it got to the point where the BBC was dismantled to a certain extent, but the point is kind of that independent production companies bring their programs to the BBC and say, "Look, 
we've got this, we want to make it, will mm-hmm. you give us the money to make it? Mm, okay. What doesn't tend to happen, mm. and, you know, there was a lot of talk about this happening with Doctor Who back in the late 80s and 90s, and the I reason why it didn't that. happen is because this is was not because there was no wherewithal to do it, but because this is not how it works. Mm. It is a very complicated situation, mm. and... It works that independent companies come to the BBC and say, give us the money to make this programme we bring into you. It does not work the other way around. BBC does not farm out programmes that already exist to production companies purely on logistical grounds to do with the paperwork. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to do some, if you wanted to do the Big Bang, not the Big Bang, the Pandorica Opens with an independent production company, you're not just talking about that independent production company licensing the character of the doctor the trademark of the tardis the patent or whatever on Mm. the series you're also talking about that production company having to license out the rights to all the different characters and monsters Monsters, that are in that program Mm. and any other secondary characters like Mm. river song who are Mm -hmm. guesting in that program who are owned by somebody else you know as soon as it goes to an independent Mm. company you're talking about a hell of a lot of paperwork going out. But not only that, you're then talking about all that paperwork having to come back Mm. when the independent sells the programme back to the BBC. That is not even getting into the even thornier subject of international sales rights and merchandising rights. Mm. It is a kettle of fish that nobody would in their right minds go anywhere near wanting to open. Mm. And this is why it didn't happen in the 80s or Mm -hmm. 90s, because people wanted it to happen, and it was just far too complicated. It's interesting. But yeah, so I'm saying it's on the outer limits of possibility. So anyone whinging about the BBC is in their interest to keep the BBC going, basically. Yeah, essentially. And I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, obviously. I'm just saying that it's not simply a case of saying, hey, do you want to make Doctor Who for us? Mm. Go for it, you know. Hiatuses and split seasons. Then mm. I've written something down at the top of there. It's the second line on there, Mark, and I think this is something that people forget. And I think it's massively significant to this topic of conversation. So I'm going to get you to read that line out before I explain what I mean by it. Okay, right. Okay. So uh, the gap between seasons one and two, the twelfth of September to the 31st of October, 1964. This was Doctor Who's first hiatus. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't the gap between seasons. This was an actual hiatus. Mm-hmm. Verity Lambert and her production team, when they took on Doctor Who, nobody knew how long it was going to last. Mm. It could have been 13 episodes. It could have been 26 episodes. It could have been cancelled at any time. And they were renewing it, insofar as I'm aware, as they were going along. But what was set down right at the very start Mm. was that Doctor Who would be in production and would be in transmission for 52 weeks of the year. And Verity Lambert and her actors and her crew, Mm. as part of that first production block, made 10 Doctor Who stories to to carry the series up to 52 weeks in year one Mm -hmm. and at some point somebody took the decision to stop transmission after the eighth story 
and hold on to the next two stories until the start of the second season. Mm. That was a that wasn't right, just yeah. a that wasn't just a break in transmission. That was an actual hiatus. The Planet of Giants. I can't remember now. It mm. finished with Reign of Terror and started mm. up again with Planet of Giants. Mm. I'm not going to go into the whole Planet of Giants cut down from four to three mm. thing. Mm. That's a different yeah. conversation. But Planet of Giants and Dalek Invasion of Earth were intended as part of what we will know as season one. Mm. It wasn't season one. It was just the first year of Doctor Who at the time. Yeah. And if you look at it, essentially you've got An Unearthly Child, which is an introductory episode. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Three Tribe of Gum episodes, yeah. which which feels like a separate story, mm. not to, the, to An Unearthly Child. It feels like a separate story to the rest of yeah. what comes in Doctor Who. Mm. But actually, the Three Tribe of Gum episodes are still an introduction. They're an introduction to the concept of the programme. Right. Unearthly Child introduces you to the characters. Mm-hmm. Tribe of Gum introduces you to the concept. Yeah. Daleks is the first actual story mm. once everything's been introduced. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, that first year of Doctor Who, although it wasn't planned when they were writing the Daleks, yeah. but it was very ostentatiously the plan when they were writing mm-hmm. Dalek Invasion of Earth, that the first year should finish with a Dalek story mm. to mirror the way it had sort of begun. Well, I guess when they started out, they never really anticipated whether it was going to be a hit or not, so they were just limited to that initial run. Um, but I think it had a knock-on effect. I know I'm probably getting a bit ahead of ourselves here, but... No, go ahead. In the early years, you know, that 52-week um, filming schedule, well, it I think it did for William Hartnell indirectly and uh, it did really push Patrick Trout out the door sooner mm. than he probably might have liked it did but do you want to know something ironic mm. if you look at it if you look at what the plan was for that first year and um, this happens throughout the 1960s mm. so we tend to forget now mm. but actually those weeks off that the various actors are given mm. That is supposed to be their holiday for the year. Yeah. Mm. They're not supposed to get a two-month break in it's the it's summer. It's not even to work in their soap opera, is it? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's like you work at, if you work into a fifty-two episode year. What you do is you have six episodes during those fifty-two where the Doctor doesn't appear, mm-hmm. and that's William Hartnell's six weeks off. Yeah. Mm. And those are his, you know, six six weeks of annual leave, if you mm. want to call it that way. Yeah. And that, very obviously, from the start of the program is what was intended, mm-hmm. that each of the actors should do all 52, well, should do the entire 52 weeks, mm-hmm. but have, I don't know whether it was six, I've not sat down and looked, no. but I'm assuming it would have been five or six mm-hmm. or seven, something like that. Each one of those actors would have had six weeks off during the course of those 52 weeks. And that's what they did in the first year. Mm-hmm. They recorded 52 weeks in a row, and they each had you know, X amount of weeks off during that time. Yeah. And it was only when they got to the end of those 52 weeks that the decision had already been made to stop production and save those two stories to kick off the second season Mm -hmm. that actually they then got an extra two-month break on top of what they were already expecting because that decision wasn't taken until later in the day. That was not planned to happen when they first started production Mm. on on An Earthly Child. So that's something that came in and became the pattern for the next six years. So actually, if you look at what Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines and all the other actors mm. were getting, 
they were kind of, in a way, getting extra weeks off in between the two-month break. Mm. And although that two-month break was less than two months because it would also involve them coming back early to start filming yeah. for the early stories in the next series, mm. and if something happened, and it quite often did, which meant production on a serial would get bumped back a week, yeah. then that two-month break would get you know, eaten into at the mm. other end as well. Mm. In the end... You know, you're not going to begrudge them the fact that they had weeks off and a break as well no, between seasons. Definitely not. That's not what I'm talking about, mm. though. What I'm talking about is the fact that that first year was planned as a 52 week season. Mm-hmm. And had it gone straight into the second year, we would know that as season two because it would have been, we might not know it as season two, we'd know it mm. as year one and year two. Yeah. And the way the paperwork would have described it would yeah. have been as year one, year that. two. Yeah. Okay. So we would still know it the same way, even if it had gone 52 weeks around. So that's the 60s. Mm. And we and don't need to concentrate really anymore on the 60s because the, once that precedent was set down, mm. that pattern was adhered to for the rest of that decade. Yeah. And what usually happened was at the end of each production block, they'd record the first story for the next one. Yeah. For instance, Galaxy 4 recorded mm. as part of Season 2 and you know the Dominators recorded as part of Season five, yeah. etc. Mm-hmm. That's your pattern. Well, then, okay, Simon, here's the other most interesting thing, and everybody knows mm. what I'm going to say next. Yeah. And this is probably what they were expecting when I gave you that first line to read a few minutes ago, yeah. Mark. Get between season six and season seven, 21st of June 1969 to 3rd of January 1970. Just over six months. Yeah. Doctor mm. Who had never stopped for more than. Ten weeks, I think, is the most they had stopped for before. I may be completely misremembering this, but I seem to remember they decided to go with the idea of splitting it or giving it that break and changing the way they recorded because um, they'd had the sort of feedback from the the main cast that they were just getting burnt out from the previous <clears> seasons. <throat> so, hence why... In Pertwee's first season, you've got all these seven and six-parter stories because they're changing the way they record the episodes, aren't they? Yeah. Well, that was something... I think that was something that Barry Letts imposed in the second mm. series he did. Second mm. season he did. Okay. The two-week production turnaround. Would there have been another series or another serial that would have been like a template for that way of working? No. See, season seven was supposed to be Doctor Who's last season. Mm. Oh, okay. In right. fact, if you look at season six, the War Games yeah. is, to all intents and purposes, Doctor Who's last story. Mm. And what happened was, during the production of season six, the War Games only happens because two other stories fall yeah. through. And it's only while they're in production on War Games that the BBC greenlights season seven because mm. they'd planned to take Doctor Who off at the end of the War Games. And then they discovered they didn't have anything else to go in its slot. Mm. So they said, okay, we'll do one more season of Doctor Who while we work out what to put in there. Mm. And so they greenlight season seven, at which point Patrick Troughton's already gone. So the production office have got no other choice than to cast an actor. And I suspect they probably didn't tell him this, but the (laughs) idea when they cast John Pertwee was that he was only doing one year. Yeah. Now, they probably gave him something like a three-year contract with options to uh, cancel it after a year Mm. and didn't tell him the reason why there was an option to cancel it after a year. I don't know, because obviously I've never seen these contracts. 
But, and I don't think anybody's ever really said this, but John Pertwee, mm. when he was engaged, was only supposed to do one year as Doctor Who. And the fact is, they didn't find anything to replace it with. And all of a sudden, the viewing figures picked up and yeah. it started to become something that was back in the public consciousness mm. again in the way it had been in the mid-60s. Go on, say thank you, Mr Pertwee, Mark. Thank you, Mr Pertwee. <laughs> well, I don't think he was entirely John Pertwee, but he obviously is a big part of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent to go on, but I think it's definitely the setting it on Earth thing. Mm. Much as we might look back on it now and say that's a really backwards-looking decision, but actually, if you want a programme to engage with, you know, anything more than the six-year-olds watching at home, if you want it to engage with the parents as well, mm. you've got to give them something that they recognise. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And season five kind of did in that it was all set on bases. Yeah. Like... Uh, I was going to say moon bases then, but actually the moon bases were in season four <laughs> and season six. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. A I sea know. base, yeah. that kind of stuff. Season grounded. five. Yeah, season five is grounded in places that the general population can recognise. Mm. But by the same token, although Jamie and to a degree Victoria are basically just playing 60s teens who happen to be mm. from other periods of time... But to the general public at home, you've still got this slightly odd thing of three people travelling in this machine, none of whom are really identification characters, mm. doing a series of weird kind of haphazard things that bend no relation to your life. Mm -hmm. So I think the big reason why series season seven was such a success was mm. because of the Earth settings, yeah. mm. because they gave Doctor Who a recognisable grounding, yeah. Mm. So that people could say, okay, it's going down <laughs> in a way that I can recognise. Oh, I'd love to hear Pertwee say that as a line. <laughs> Brigadier, which shit's going down? In a way that I can recognise in some way mm. some of my own life in the story. Yeah. It's, you know, in Inferno, you can say, well, I can imagine that happening to me, mm. which is not something you can really say with the wheel in space or this is true anything in season six to be honest apart from obviously the invasion which was mm. the template for repackaging seven. as well though isn't it obviously coming in color it sounds like an obvious thing to say but the, the nobody color had color tallies nobody saw it in color the okay. difference it is a repackaging mm. and a repackaging in and of itself is enough to resell it you know people say why do big companies change their logos from time to time and things like that. Mm. The reason they change their logos from time to time is because, you know, if you've been with British Gas until, you know, 2005 and then went to EDF, yeah, and you've been with EDF since 2005, that's 10 years you've been with EDF and you've seen the British Gas adverts on the telly mm. for 10 years. Mm. And because you've been watching them for 10 years, you don't bat an eyelid. Mm. But if they change their advert yeah, and their jingle the and their logo, yeah. all of a sudden you notice. Mm. And that's why repackaging works. Because if you change something, people notice. Because something that's become Unless wallpaper... Unless you put washing up bowls on the inside of the TARDIS. That's just wrong. <laughs> something that's become wallpaper <laughs> all of a sudden becomes, you know, mm. hung paintings. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. So, you know, that is why all of a sudden it picked up. But, you know, on the subject of the hiatuses, 
that we're talking about. This is again an imposed hiatus because mm. regardless of what the reasons were, whether whether that's the real reason, Mark, or not, mm. the point is somebody came in and said, right, what we're going to do now is we're going to stop production for X amount of months and we won't go back into broadcast transmission until January. Mm-hmm. Somebody actually came in and made a decision to change it. Yeah. So that is definitely an imposed hiatus by the criteria mm. which I suppose we're looking at these mm. things. So, and I mean, you know, what we've got to recognise here is I'm doing an awful lot of talking again, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So wasn't you. (laughs) What we've got to recognise here is that there was no internet. There was no recognisable fandom back in those days. As far as you're concerned, there was no internet a couple of years ago, was there, really? Well, that's fair enough, Mark. It's actually (laughs) been seven years now, if you're counting. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. No. But the th- this is the thing. Had there been an internet mm. and a recognisable fandom mm-hmm. at the time of, you know, the reign of terror, yeah. and all of a sudden at the reign of terror, the announcer, you know, unbeknownst to anybody watching, mm. has suddenly said, and Doctor Who will be back in eight weeks. Yeah. The internet would have melted down. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know, without any warning, mm. without this being a part of the plan. Yeah. Because nobody would have said this, you know, when An Unearthly Child was broadcast, because nobody knew this when An Unearthly Child was broadcast. People on the internet overreacting. And by the same token, mm. nobody knew when The Dominators was broadcast that there was going to be a six-month gap between season six and season seven. Mm. So, once again, if you get to the end of the War Games and they say, instead of Doctor Who will be back in two months, Doctor Who will be back next year. Yeah. Now... And and I'm not, and this is not a criticism of the internet. Mm. This is the way people work. They get into a habit with something and they expect that habit to be met. And when that habit is not met, regardless of whether you think it's an overreaction or not, Mm. if a habit's not met, a habit that you've got into, you react. I know this is in danger of becoming the Radio Free Scaro appreciation show, but... um... They are so on the ball when they bring out their episodes. Every episode comes out on a Sunday at well, 7 o'clock UK time. Yeah, yeah. And on the rare occasion that it doesn't come out, you'll see people going, oh, where's the episode? Where's the episode? And they're just badgering. You're thinking, um, okay, we'll just you know, give them a chance. I'm yes, sure they have lives. Yeah. Give it a couple of hours. Yeah. <laughs> He's just on the toilet, that's all. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. No, Stephen. Stephen puts them out, doesn't he? Well, I thought you were, oh, when you mentioned the toilet. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Are you telling us something about Chris's habits now? Well. Okay, we'll move on from that. <laughs> Do we know? <clears throat> speaking about the, you know the the network and um and and the rumours and all that sort of thing. Do we know when it was announced that John Pertwee would be taken over from Patrick Trun in the middle of the War Games? It was. Oh, oh okay. okay. So there was a oh, certain actually, of, um, Oh, no. I don't know if it was announced in the middle of the New War Games. His contract was signed in the middle of the War Games. Right. Yeah. I just so, wondered what the... Um... I think it was known by the end of the War Games that it was going to be John Pertwee. Okay. I don't think they kept it a secret. I couldn't swear to you when it happened, but I'm probably about 60, 40 that it, it mm. was announced during the War Games. Okay. So for that six months, there was a certain amount of... Anticipation. Anticipation is what I was looking for, yeah. Especially as he didn't appear at the end of the War Games. Mm. Because I think, 
although he signed the contract while War Games was still in production, I think they'd finished production on the War Games before they would have had chance to. I imagine there's those famous photos, isn't there, with him, him the Ice Warrior, and the Yeti, and all yeah. that sort of thing. So that must be on the tail end of. Well, the Yeti was supposed to be the monster in Spearhead from Space at one point, I think. Oh, okay. Which is possibly why they appeared in that photo shoot. Mm. Yeah, he, uh, you know, back in the 60s, and this is, you know, things change all the time. And now we have the internet and things are changing really quickly. Mm. And, you know, regardless of whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, because the internet's there, people demand information. Back in the 60s, it worked in a very different way, even different from the 70s. Things mm. had already changed in the 70s, and they changed again massively in the 80s. Yeah. You couldn't imagine Peter Davison leaving and it not being announced on BBC News the instant he said, I'm leaving, mm. and it not being announced on BBC News the instant Colin Baker had signed the contract to be the yeah. next Doctor. But back in the 60s, it's like if John Pertwee's coming up with the next Doctor... But apart from the fact that it's not a thing that there will even be a next Doctor at mm. this point, because nobody had explained why William Hartnell had turned into Patrick Troughton, yeah. so none of the people watching knew that it was likely to happen again. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And of course it's imposed upon the Doctor at the end of the War Games, mm. so it's only when you get to the planet of the spiders, I mean we've discussed this before, it's only when you get to the planet of the spiders that it actually becomes... A thing. A thing yeah. And from that point forwards, from John Pertwee announces he's leaving to Tom Baker announce um you know, the announcement that Tom Baker signed on, mm. that's when it starts to become a media yeah. thing that they'll advertise this. Mm. So yeah, John Pertwee he posed with those pictures and they obviously publicized that. But I'm not entirely sure there was an announcement in the same terms as we would recognise it that John Pertwee was taking over. No. Not in the same way as there would be these days. Well, certainly not in the same way as there would be now with a 30-minute programme dedicated to it on BBC One. A couple of things about that six-month gap, though. Obviously, there's the practicalities of, well, basically they've got to reboot the show to a certain extent. They've got to <clears> say, right, there's a big change is going on. We've got six months to have that ready to start again but also from the from the audience's point of view to have that gap that enables the show to come back as something so different mm. yeah yeah it was a completely yeah. different animal i mean <clears throat> for that what... to sort of come along two weeks after the end of the last one yeah. say, well, hang on this isn't the show we were watching well, it's what i've said about when you have a regenerating doctor it's important to have and this is part of the problem with colin baker mm. it's important to have that's Doctor's final story be the last story of the season mm, so yeah. that even though the next Doctor's given us three lines at the end of the episode yeah. you've still got X amount of months to grieve yeah. for one and build anticipation on the other because mm. at the end of that story you know I'm going to do a diagram with my hands here but at the end of that story you're 90% grief for the Doctor who's gone and 10% anticipation for mm. the Doctor who's to come and over the period of six months that's changed to 10% grief and 90% anticipation, yeah. you know? Mm, that's mm. been a gradual change. Mm -hmm. You can't do a gradual change over the course of the six days between the last instalment of Caves of Androzani and yeah. the first part of the mm. Twin Dilemma. Especially when he starts throttling the companion within a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Six yeah, days no, is absolutely. not long enough for that I know, yeah, process. From the practical point of view as well, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, the, the budget's <clears> been used up and you're left with... I don't you know, I'm I'm probably in the minority. I don't mind the twin dilemma. There's obvious faults with it, but you know I actually think it's an okay story. Yeah. I think it's 
I think it's the... It just um, looks really, you know, it looks like they needed to scrape up a few more quid just because they're having I'm not even sure it's the budget, to be honest. Mm. I think I could live with it. It's just the sort of general mm. sort of tone of it. It's like almost everybody working on it wasn't really sure what they wanted. Mm. Yeah, like you were saying about directors before, uh, when we were talking about films before we start recording, so nobody <laughs> will know. Although it may be an Easter egg, because actually I was recording. But you know what I mean? Did, did, Twin Dilemma, nobody really seemed to know what anybody was expecting of them, did they? Mm, mm. So you've got... So I could live with a low budget, but mm. I can't live with all the different tones mm. and consistencies and the mm. performances and everything else. Not just the performances, but the production. <clears throat> okay, Mark, I'm going to come back to you for this next one. Oh, thank you. Uh, right, here's your next line. Not sure whether people would be expecting this one, but... Okay, so the gap between seasons 18 and 19, uh, that's from the 21st of March 1981 to the 4th of January 1982. I wonder if people were expecting us to go straight to season 22 to 23. Hmm. Well, this is the thing. Six months became the default, apart from hmm. in 1975. Do, hmm. we, do we know what happened in 1975? Outside of Doctor Who, do you mean? Uh, no. Uh, in 1975, um, Terror of the Zygons was held off from the end of season right, 12. Yeah. To... When John Pertwee started, January 1970, Doctor Who was running from January to June. Mm -hmm. Those were its six months on air. Mm. Start of January to the end of June. And viewing figures always dropped during the sunnier months. Yeah, yeah. And the BBC kind of worked out why are we running Doctor Who into the summer mm. when it would be much more successful if we ran it autumn to spring. Yeah. So finally, after five years of it running January to June, they said, why don't we run it September to March? Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Yeah. So from season 13 onwards, Doctor Who so is running September to March. Mm -hmm. And they hold off. So actually, in season 12, finishes... Actually, this would be 76, not 75, or would it be? No, 75. Yeah, 75. It's mm. the second half of 75, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Because Robot starts, well, actually, at the end of... Well, that yeah. was filmed in Pertwee's last year. Yeah, because yeah. they were still doing yeah. sometimes what they'd been doing in the mm -hmm. 60s. Not every year, but most years. Um, so, yeah, 1975, the gap, instead of finishing at the end of June, mm -hmm. it finishes slightly earlier because mm. they cut the end of it. So it finishes sometime in May, I believe. Mm. And then it comes back either very late August or the start of September with the story that would have finished. So actually... Now, nowadays, they would have held off for the following year, wouldn't they? Mm. But actually, so what you've got there is a gap of three months instead of a gap of six. Mm -hmm. Or a gap of four months instead of six, rather. So yeah. for once... The gap between seasons of Doctor Who shrinks. Yeah, that's irrelevant to what we're talking about. But I just thought it was an interesting point to bring no, up. It's, it's, as I say, it would have. You can't help thinking that if that would have happened today, they would have said, "Well, okay, we'll just hold off, spend a bit more time, and do it for the following year." Was there any sort of knock-on effect of going from the Saturday to the weekdays as well as to why they changed? I think that's a whole other podcast, mm. but we'll come to that. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, the one obvious thing is two episodes a week. Yeah. And that's what I was about to bring up. Mm -hmm. But the weekday thing, I think, is a whole other matter. Yeah. And I think that's an entire podcast by itself, which will happen. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. <laughs> so apart from the one example I've just mentioned, and that being the reason I brought it up, throughout the entire most popular decade, 
in Doctor Who history, you know, classic series history, I suppose we should point out, mm-hmm. Doctor Who has always run for six months of the year, and then you've had six months off. Yeah. Six months on, six months off. Get to the end of that decade, and lo and behold, nine-month break. Mm. Never been known before. You've gone, in the space of ten years, just over ten years, twelve years, you've gone from a two-month break to a nine-month mm. break. And of course, for the next couple of years, a nine well, not for the next couple of years, for the, next decade actually a nine-month break becomes the norm because you're actually showing the season in half the amount of time Mm. even actually when you get to season 22 instead of having two episodes a week you've got one episode a week twice as long yeah so it's still only on for three months (laughs) of the year yeah but this is kind of what i'm saying here is nine-month break again unprecedented and again the internet would probably have melted down They'd have said, it's in production, you're making the same number of episodes, why can't we have them when we used to having them? And, you know, when you get to season 19 and you've got two episodes a week, uh, you know, a a large part of the watching audience would probably have said, I think I'd have rather had one episode a week in order to have Doctor Who for six months instead of three. Mm. Such an odd decision. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a decision. Like I say, I think it's worth talking about, as and when we do a podcast about the whole weekday thing, because mm-hmm. I think that's a very interesting topic to get into. That's a lot deeper than we can go into in a few minutes here. <clears throat> but this, the story by now should be unfolding that Doctor Who starts intending to be all year round, yeah. and as time goes on. And the fact that this takes place at the end of each decade Mm. is purely coincidence. But on the decade breaks, Doctor Who gets a bigger gap and contracts. Yeah. Mm. And although season 19 has the same number of episodes, more or less, as people have been used to, Mm. it's still a contraction in terms of time. Yeah. So, and you know, you've probably guessed why I've brought this up now. Because... The news story that I, or the mm. rumor from the private eye that I was saying about there being yeah. less Doctor Who, mm. and it is generally speaking, classic series fans who are like the most up in arms about there being less Doctor Who. They should be used to it. They should be used to it. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. There is. <laughs> there's not just precedence for this. There is precedence after precedence after yeah, precedence. Yeah, but JR, for this. logic doesn't come into it because <clears throat> we're all passionate about it and we love it. Actually, and now, we're desperate. I it's may like be a... wrong, but it's a, it's a more intense experience, mm. Doctor Who, now. Mm. It's more of an event yeah. than, it, than it was mm. then. Plus, I mean, what you forget, as well as. And part of the reason for it being a more intense experience is because back then, when Barry Letts was in charge and John Pertwee was the Doctor, you had five stories a year mm, across yeah. six months. Yeah. Now you've got ten stories a year across three months. Yeah. Mm. That's you know one of the reasons why it's a more intense experience. Mm. You're getting, you know, people will point to a 45-minute episode and say you don't get the character development you do in six 25-minute installments. I think if you ask any of the companions from the 60s and 70s, I think they would disagree. desperate (laughs) desperate to have the the level of character development they get in the new series. I mean in guest characters, though. Okay. One-story characters. And while that's not quite untrue, uh, by the same token... Largely, there's a lot of shorthand involved mm. in achieving 
a similar kind of yeah. character development. So yeah, there are sacrifices you make, mm -hmm. but by the same token, you are getting more for your money. I mean, what you I, could do I mean, is you money could have, metaphorically. You could have more two-parters, couldn't you? Well, yeah, like we're going to have this year, but yeah. Simon and I, and if you'd like to come along and you can make it, mm. we're going to do a preview podcast in two or three weeks' time. Yeah, obviously, mm. absolutely that. So this year is going to be slightly different from what we've been used to for the last couple of years. But then, you know, I like the way Moffat changes it up. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, it's ages ago now, I can't remember even what episode it was now. You were asking what our hopes were for the next series, and mine was, more can we have more two-parters? Yeah. I got what I wanted. Pretty much. Yeah, so it's my fault if it's not very good. But but then a lot of fans were saying that, weren't mm. they? That's been quite a pop... That's been almost a meme on the yeah, internet. Really? I think so, yeah, oh, pretty I was much. unaware of it. Oh, yeah, you don't go on the forums like I do. No, no, that way madness lies. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but when you write about it, though, you have to try and keep your finger on mm. at least a little bit of the pulse of what's going on, otherwise yeah. you'd be writing completely at odds with... I mean, I know I do deliberately write at odds <laughs> with what some people are thinking, but I'd like to at least know what people are thinking about. Do you know what I mean? So I have to do a bit of You're research. suggesting you're contrary, are you? <laughs> if, if people's opinion is different to mine then I guess you could definitely say I was being contrary by having a different opinion to the one that they hold uh, look we've been building towards the gap between seasons 22 and 23 but you know what we don't really need to talk about it we've was there a gap? We've discussed it before. We've discussed the reasons why, and we've discussed what happened. Yeah. We've discussed, you know, one of the things I was going to say, and this is where I'm planning to go a bit now, I suppose, it, not in terms of whether you like the stories, mm. not in terms of whether you like the actors or mm -hmm. the characters they're playing. Try and think of this independently. When Doctor Who, I'm going to go back over the breaks with talked about now and ask a question mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then I will ask it about season 23 although we did an entire podcast answering yeah. it a few months ago but nevertheless mm -hmm. the gap between season 6 and season 7 season 7 comes back completely differently yeah. we did kind of say a few minutes ago a little bit did it work I think so yeah absolutely did it you know there was it a certain amount, yeah 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 mm. so now, obviously, the question I want to ask is, season mm. 19, when it comes back and it's twice weekly, not because it's twice weekly, mm. but the twice weekly thing is what caused the big break. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, but I definitely remember that break as being the longest break that ever been and being a bit frustrated about it, even at the age of, I think I was 12 or 13. And with only five mm. places of Doctor Who to break out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, we did have that, but gap between new Doctor Who had never been like that, and yeah. I was astonished at it. When it comes back twice weekly, not in terms of the twice weekliness, mm. nor in terms of the actual stories, but in terms of a reconceived series the reception in a certain it, yeah. way, yeah. Does it work? <sighs> As a child of that age, I think did it. I, don't know. I think it. I think it did in my head. It did feel like a new series. I mean, you, let's not forget <laughs> a long period of time. It almost needed that after Tom Baker. After Tom mm, Baker, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that long stint. So it really mm. was the idea for it to come back completely rejuvenated. It seemed fresh to I me. I thought it came back really dull, though. 
Mm. As a, I think I was 13, I, I went, what's the date? 8th January 82. Mm. I'd still have been 12, actually. Mm. Well, there's that word anticipation again, isn't it? Because you're saying about the gap um, in Colin Baker's seasons. Uh, the, the anticipation has a psychological effect that you just imagine because it's coming back later that they've got more time to pull out the stops and, and come back with something well, I'll tell bit... you something funny mm. and this kind of goes contrary to what you were just saying when you get a gap between season 6 and season 7 it comes back in colour the new Doctor yeah but it comes back in colour and okay most people have got black and white tellies but it comes back with a new logo and it comes back with a new feel mm. you know I don't think the difference in feel is quite as pronounced as any of those other things but there's definitely a slightly different tone mm. so when it comes back in season seven it feels like a new program yeah when it comes back in season 19 all of those changes i've just talked about in season seven took place in season yeah. 18 yeah so when it comes back in 19 yeah. that gap almost feels like it's been for nothing yeah the only difference is the doctor himself yeah mm. absolutely and yes Nine months after Tom Baker gives you a chance to properly let go of that actor. Mm. But in terms of everything else, the programme almost comes back saying, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Kind of a, it feels like a, it feels like the break took place in the wrong year. Mm. I definitely understand where you're coming from. The fact you've got that hangover of Tom staying on that Mm. final year. Um, but I think it certainly reinvigorated it in terms of the Doctor, regardless of whether you yeah. hate Peter Davison and the Doctor or not. As well. yeah. yeah. And the two two episodes a week thing, and mm. like I say, I want to get into this in more detail in the future, definitely brings aboard a new audience. Mm. And having someone that young in the lead role was quite a sensation at the time, wasn't it? Means it appeals to a different kind of person. Mm, yeah. Yeah, hugely popular from all creatures great and small. Mm. He was kind of the favourite character of a lot of people in that. Yeah. So then what we're saying with season nineteen is in some ways it reinvigorates yeah. the formula mm. and in other ways it fails too mm. because some of the other changes happen. I can see where you're heading here, values yeah. are the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> season twenty three then. Yeah. Does season twenty three manage mm. to do any of those things? Uh. Because look, we've said if you're going to have a big gap, you've got to come back with a change, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of the theme of what I've been mm-hmm. saying, is yeah. that if you're going to have a big gap, you've got to come back with some kind of a change in order, in some ways, to valid- validate the gap. I think in terms of appealing to the mass audience... Well, this uh, is it. Season 23 comes back, yeah. and instead of being individual stories, yeah. you've got one banner title yeah. for the entire season. That's a shooting yeah. yourself in the foot change. Yeah. As I was saying, going back to that anticipation thing and without honing down one episode, that that scene, that amazing bit of effects at the start with the yeah. TARDIS coming in, it came back mm-hmm. and you thought, yes, they've used mm-hmm. the time, they've come back, they've done something different with it. And then the moment yeah. that shot finishes, yeah, <clears throat> we're back to mm. business mm. as usual. Yeah. To an extent, and the Mm -hmm. thing that's different about the format of the story, as you say, is the own goal. Mm. It's the thing that Mm. mm. it's one of those things where you know, in an alternative universe, that could have worked because you get the War Games, for example. Doctor Who is a series that runs on you know, fairly short term stories, Mm. usually four episodes. Mm -hmm. In the Harnell days, it kind of been. 
lots of fours and the occasional six. Mm-hmm. And those sixes were all Dalek stories or the equivalent thereof. The Web Planet was conceived as, yeah. you know, the equivalent of a Dalek story. Then you get to Patrick Troughton. His first year is all four-parters. His second year is all six-parters. You know, I'm generalising. People mm. were listening mm. and saying, oh, the Servant's only got four parts. Come on, Joe. Generalising, <laughs> four-parters in season yeah. four, okay. five-parters in season five. Anything goes in season six because yeah. they were just desperately scrabbling mm. stories together. Mm. But then you get the War Games, and I've said this before as well. The War Games feels like a serial in and of itself rather than a serial as a part of a series mm. of short serials. Mm. Mm. It feels like, you know, a series from yes, start to finish. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And those three seven parters in season seven kind of got a little bit of the feel of that. Mm. You know, Inferno kind of and the Ambassadors of Death. Yeah. Kind of start to feel a bit, for want of a better expression, soap opera in yeah. the way the audience are expected to come back week after week to see the same characters mm. going through not quite the same motions but variations on mm. those motions. The same as they did in the War Games, mm. which is not what you usually get in a four-part story or even a six-part story. It's kind of the Quatermass thing, isn't it? The other thing as yeah. well, you know, if you're coming in as a casual fan, um, the whole setup with the trial and the fact that they keep switching between the evidence, which is your sort mm. of episode in itself, and then going back to the courtroom. You know, for someone just walking in partway through, they must be thinking, what the hell is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, regardless of you know how good the story is within itself, it's you're trying this, to appeal to that matter. Well, yeah. it's, it's a real struggle. This is perhaps what the problem is: is that if you're going to tell a story over ten episodes, or twelve episodes, mm. or fourteen episodes, or whatever, they got the balance wrong. Mm. The evidence, because what happens in trial is basically you've got three stories into which the trial is intercut. Yeah, what it should have been. Is the trial across 14 episodes mm. into which are intercut bits of stories? You could have, you could have had the uh, the setup of the trial in perhaps the first episode, and then the. Way no, no, no. I mean, com- I mean completely differently. Okay. Look at episodes 13 and 14, mm-hmm. right? Imagine that spread yeah. across 14 episodes okay. with maybe five or ten minutes worth of Terror of the mm-hmm. Vervoids mm-hmm. in there somewhere. Okay. So that... And I'm not saying that literally. What I'm saying is, no, that, if the story kind of... across those 14 mm. episodes had been the trial, the first two episodes are getting the Doctor to the trial mm-hmm. room, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Into which you have flashbacks to something that's going on on the planet Ravalox, right? Yeah. So you don't need nearly as much of the mysterious planet 20 minutes will do it, spread across two episodes. You're getting the Doctor to the trial room and you're flashing back to this thing that's part of the reason why you're getting in there. Mm. Then once you've got him in the trial room, you have four episodes worth of shenanigans during which you've got intercut 10 minutes in each episode of mind warp because that's all you need of mind warp Mm. to get to the end point. Did the Doctor know what was going to happen to Perry? What this guy was really doing? Was he really working against him or is the Doctor responsible for Perry's death? And then the big reveal. You just need enough of mind warp in there Mm. to make that four episode section of the trial story have that ambiguity of meaning. 
And you carry on like that all the way through. You there, tell the trial even, story and your balance is weighted towards the trial. There's even an opportunity to, to slot in some clips from classic stories as well, isn't there? Sure, sure is, but that's an entirely different thing. You see, the point I'm making is that yeah. by balancing it away from the trial, yes. what you're doing is confusing casual viewers with the trial. Mm. Whereas if you'd have balanced it towards the trial, then all the clips that are being shown, it doesn't matter if they've not seen the first three ten-minute segments of Mind Warp. If they see the last one, they've seen enough I mean, to don't know. Don't get me wrong, happening. I love Michael Jason. I think he's amazing. And, um, oh, the... Linda Bellingham. Linda Bellingham, yeah. Um, they're great, but I don't think it does them real justice in the way that it's... They just look up. like... They just constantly look like they're doing a sketch in the middle mm. of somebody else's programme. Yeah. Yeah. Is what it is, yeah. Well, pretty much a, they would have been just coming back to the same set every day for the work, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. The Bellingham would, would have. I imagine she probably filmed her bits in the space of a couple of days, wouldn't she? Mm, who knows? Yeah. they. I mean, yes, it, the production block for the trial sequences mm. would have been one day every four weeks. Mm. Or something, you know. Rehearsal for a week and then a day of shooting. But you know what I'm saying is in an alternative universe, I mean, the idea itself looks like a ridiculously bad idea now because it didn't work. Mm. But the idea itself is not the thing that's inherently at fault. No. It's the way that idea is carried forward. It's slotted in the same way as a key to time. If it had been a period of of time during the programme where it was kind of comfortably doing year after year after year, then it may well have worked as a one-off, you know. Or the other alternative is you have the trial for five minutes at the start of Mysterious Planet mm-hmm. and for five minutes at the end of Mysterious Planet and yeah. forget it in between, mm-hmm. you know, just show the story mm-hmm. rather than cutting backwards and forwards. It's it's not a terrible idea. It's just, you know, I think they were getting carried away. Well, I think in season t- 22, they were getting carried away on the weight of their own success, perceived success, mm. such that when it came to season 23 and all of a sudden they had this hiatus and mm. almost been cancelled yeah. and people were telling them that what they were doing was wrong but nobody was telling them what it was that they mm. were doing was wrong. You know, they come back to season 23 and I think this is the reason why season 23 is the way it is was because that wave of positive energy all of a sudden has dissipated, but nothing's replaced it except for nervousness yeah. about mm. what it was mm. that they were doing wrong when they thought it had been going so well. Mm. Yeah, it's a, yeah, a programme behaving like it's in the gun sights. Yeah, it's just yeah. being timid Yeah, mm. without, without knowing why it's being timid. Like if you're a rabbit in the headlights, you sketch it of what's about to happen. Mm. But you have no idea what those headlights are. And that's what Doctor Who was in season 23. It was mm. a rabbit in a set of headlights that it had no idea what was on the other side of. And what was on the other side of it was ultimately 1989 in the end. Mm. Right, this, I want to take a... We're not going to dwell on this now because we've talked about these things many times in the past in quite mm. some depth. But... In order to carry on with the conversation that we've been having, I'm going to take a slightly different tack here. Mm. Instead of looking at the break and then saying, did it work? I'm going to ask, did it work? And then look at the break. And there's a reason for this, but I'll get into the reason for it in a minute. The first one is Series 6. Right, the thing about Series 6 is, if you look at the five episodes that Stephen Moffat wrote, Mm -hmm. they basically make a five-part story. Yeah. And if you look at the episodes that Stephen Moffat 
didn't write, mm. apart from the fact that in things like the Rebel Flesh, you've got a red yeah. herring about mm. how it's all going to end up. But that is just a red herring. Well, we get the occasional sort of view of... Yeah, um, the Madame Covarian. Yeah, yeah, but the thing about the Madame Covarian that bits, could have just been put into any episode. Yeah, yeah. they could have been thrown in anywhere. Yeah. So they threw them they into the ones that are quite in standalone. The, yeah, they yeah. threw those into the episodes that are in the first half of mm-hmm. the series. But they could easily have thrown one of those into the girl who waited. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was very easy to throw it into the girl yeah. who waited. Yeah. So let's ignore the episodes that weren't written by Stephen Moffat mm-hmm. and ask ourselves. The break between a good man goes to war and let's kill Hitler. How does that work? And is it effective having a, what was it, three-month break in between the two, I think? Something in the region of three Mm. months break between the two. I think it was an unknown quantity at that point for new series viewers, so I think it helped to heighten the anticipation for the return. But in story terms... What I'm asking is, because <clears throat> you basically split between the first three episodes that Stephen yeah. Moffat wrote and the other two. Mm. Does something happen at the halfway point? Something happen at the end of A Good Man Goes to War that means when you come back with Let's Kill Hitler and The Wedding of River Song, you're telling a different story. It's kind of the Return of the Jedi effect, isn't it? By which you mean? By which I mean that they go away at the end of The Empire Strikes Back with a view to, right, it's time to rescue someone. And then you come back and you, a little bit of, you, you, there's that, that leap, isn't there, where the, the characters have gone away, they've done yeah. a preparation, preparation mm-hmm. they've got their plans, <clears throat> things are in place, and you yeah. come come to it. You're coming in after. Yeah. After whatever. You know that things yeah. have, have happened within mm. that time. And I'll tell you something, Return of the Jedi isn't about the rescue of Han Solo. Mm. The rescue of Han Solo takes third of Return of the Jedi and the rest of Return of the Jedi is about something else Mm. so what you're saying is you've built up because you know this is the way we look back on it now and it took place in our childhoods Mm. so we don't see the people who write it and are producing it making a decision we just see what they made and we're so used to what they made that we can't see it any other way Mm -hmm. but if you look at it objectively from the outside, as a writer, you write a middle episode like The Empire Strikes Back mm. that finishes on this almighty cliffhanger of Luke Skywalker being in all sorts of trouble with mm. having lost his hand and found out what his family is mm. and with Han Solo having been kidnapped and frozen. Yeah. And you think the final instalment is going to be all about Luke Skywalker's family and Han Solo's rescue. And if you were writing that now... The climax of Return of the Jedi would be Han Solo finally being reunited with the others. Mm. And that is not what happens. No. And by the same token, at the end of A Good Man Goes to War, you think you know where that story is going. Yeah. But what happens is the three-month break, and people are not going to like me for saying this, (laughs) but the three-month break allows you to forget, mm. not to forget, but to to put it in a separate compartment yeah. in your mind, the fact that in A Good Man Goes to War, it turned out it was about this child. Because mm-hmm. prior to A Good Man Goes to War, you didn't know it was about this child. Yeah. Suddenly in A Good Man Goes to War, you find out it's about this child, but then a three-month gap mm. allows you to forget the child 
and concentrate on who that child turns out to be. Mm-hmm. So you come back with Let's Kill Hitler, which is about the grown-up River Song yeah. and the regeneration from Mel's into River Song. Mm. And the first five minutes of Let's Kill Hitler explains to you who Mel's is. And that first five minutes of Let's Kill Hitler deals with the child and allows you to get on with telling a different story. Mm. And so therefore, I think that gap between those two episodes is inherent in the season. That season doesn't work. It's built around the season, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. If if that followed the week after, you'd just have people up in arms. Oh, just another bloody Moffat plot hole. (laughs) But not only that, Mm. can you imagine the way that season changes taking place in any one of Russell T. Davis's seasons. Mm. Can you imagine any one of Russell T. Davis's seasons completely changing halfway mm. through, mm. completely changing direction? Yeah. All of those seasons that Russell T. Davis did build from one place to another. That's not to say there weren't people, probably myself among them, at the time saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, why aren't they questioning what's happened to their daughter? You know, why aren't they looking for the baby? You know, they're satisfied that she's all right because they meet her later, but they're not. Yeah, but yeah. you know what? Mm. If you were eight, yeah, I oh, know you would say. If you were eight, <laughs> you would say, "Oh my god, is it going to be six episodes now of them looking for a baby?" No, yes. and when Let's yeah. Kill Hitler comes along, you are absolutely <laughs> stoked yeah. that they deal with the baby in the first five minutes and get yeah. on with telling. But but in terms of our subject mm-hmm. for this podcast, that absolutely crucial thing is mm. Stephen Moffat tells two different stories yeah. or rather he tells one story split into two different directions mm. and that halfway point where he splits between the season, you know uh, that three month gap is absolutely where that change in direction yeah. lies and the second half goes off at maybe not the tangent people were expecting mm. but it goes off different at this tangent thing, yeah. So, uh, where I'm coming to with this is, a a lot of people have speculated that Series 6 wasn't meant to be split. That there were problems, Sherlock happened, Mm. and things got put back because Stephen Moffat couldn't cope, and he ended up having to split it because he wasn't coping with what he was doing. And, you know, my answer to that is absolutely 100% not the case. Mm. He wrote that season with a very definite plan that there would be a three-month gap in the middle of it. There's either, no either question. that or there's a point where he thought that's where a break can go. He probably had a no, vague no. idea. There's no? no question in my mind that a good man goes to war and let's kill Hitler could not have happened in a season that wasn't mm. split. Okay. Because you just don't write it like that. No. It's written it as two separate seasons, two separate shorter seasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't even need to talk about Series 7 because we see exactly the same thing mm. in Series 7 very, very clearly. Yeah, I don't know if it works quite so well in Series 7. No, I think the... No, because I think you're talking about other stories any good mm. in Series 7. Mm. That's not what we're talking about. I know, I know. We're not talking about whether the stories are any good. We're talking about whether the break works. And, of course, in Series 7, you've got two companions in the first half and a different companion entirely in the second Mm. half. And that's why it works. And that works the best of all because, again, that is built into that. You know, people have also said about Series 7 that Stephen Moffat sat down to write 
a series that would all take place in 13 consecutive weeks. And because he couldn't cope with it, he had to split it across two years. Mm. Again, absolutely not the case, because the first half of series seven is goodbye to Amy and Rory. And there's no question there was meant to be a gap Mm. before you get Clara. And there's no question that those episodes in the second half of series seven were supposed to go out in 2013, because they all you know, relate back to the classic series, sometimes in very tangential Mm. ways, but they all relate back in ways that pay homage to 50 years of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. They are anniversary episodes. Yeah. To the point where we were going on some crazily wild speculations at the time, trying to shoehorn in classic series references. Oh, well, this must be a reference to this or... But there were references there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether the yeah. ones we were spotting yeah. were necessarily the ones yeah. that were deliberately there. I think you were at the time trying to outdo Eric Escamilla from Mostly Harmless in your uh, your ability to come up with hey. incredible explanations. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, if I hear somebody doing something on another podcast where they think they're clever, <laughs> oh, I'm going to out-clever them. <laughs> it was fun, <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it was. Mm. But, you know... Okay, your point. The, the the episode. I mean, in my reviews, mm. I mean, I love Stephen Moffat Doctor Who. It's not exactly a secret. Mm. And series five, series six, and series eight all got nines and tens out of ten. Not across the entire series, but yeah. you know, a number of episodes. Mm. Series seven, I think the most I gave for any of those ones in the second half was an eight. Yeah. So. I don't, you know, I'm not going to disagree that mm-hmm. the second half of Series 7 wasn't as good as it could have been. Yeah. Well, he said himself, and not he, that he felt? Yeah, for yeah. reasons we won't go into. No. But, yeah, you know, I think that's the new series. That's as mm-hmm. much as we need to dwell on mm-hmm. it. He knew what he was doing before mm-hmm. he was doing yeah. it. And anybody who says otherwise plainly isn't looking at the evidence in front of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a case to say... He may have rewritten things later in the day as the actual plan yeah, becomes yeah. more apparent. But it seems obvious to me from the way Series 6 works that the, there was never a case in which Series 6 wasn't split. Mm. And Series 7 even more so. Mm. So, <clears throat> I suppose that's it. I suppose we've done it. We don't know what's coming up. Next year, so or just the out of interest, after. what was what was the gap? Was it a standard gap then between Colin Baker's last series and? They were all nine Sylvester months. Mc... All nine months. Yeah, apart from that one gap of no. In fact, uh, it was slightly different between series twenty, season twenty three, and season twenty four. If I recall, I. Oh, I can't remember the dates. I haven't got a book in front of me. Mm-hmm. I know that Sylvester McCoy's three seasons ran from the end of September to the end of December, didn't they? I really can't remember. And I don't think Trial ran quite the same. Mm. I think it was ever so slightly different, but not much. Mm-hmm. It was basically, basically throughout the 1980s, it was a nine-month gap. Mm, apart from that one occasion when it was different Mm. like the 70s it was always a six month gap apart from that one occasion where they squeezed things together Mm. but yeah I think you know as a subject I've thrown at you and and obviously (laughs) as a subject that came up at the last minute because the story in private eye which as we're doing this as we're Mm. recording this was only three days ago I don't know five days ago or something Uh, yeah. yeah it wasn't long ago so this is obviously something we've come up off the cuff 
Bottom line is that no amount of shouting is going to change it anyway, is it? If that is the case, then that's the way it is. Yeah. And, you know, 15 years ago, we'd have begged to have a season of Doctor Who every other year, Mm, let alone three out of four. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose if you're going to come up with some kind of a conclusion, is that even in the classic series, we looked at it and we said, when it come back, has it been different? Has it been refreshed? Mm. And even when we think it wasn't different or refreshed successfully, it still was different and it still was refreshed. And given what Stephen Moffat's done in the new series, where he has told stories that do work across a split season, Mm. you can only think that if there is some kind of enforced gap in 2016, when it comes back in 2017, it will be the better for it. Mm -hmm. Or it will at least be in some way reinvigorated and refreshed. Mm. So... Well, there we go. Mm. I've got a few film reviews because it's been ages since I've done any film reviews and I've watched a bunch. Shall I whip through them? Go on, go on. Okay, I've brought the discs to remind me of what I've watched. Yeah. You've been busy. How how do you find the time to watch all those films? Mm. I'll watch them first thing in the morning. Very understanding other half. No, I do it when it's my day off, so she's in bed, so she has no idea I'm even doing it. (laughs) I just stay awake from. That's what I want to know. I watch them first thing in the morning. Yeah, good. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Yeah. Afternoons wouldn't work for me. No. Yeah, I can't watch a film in the afternoon. I fall asleep. Mm. I can do it in the evening. Mm. Can't do it in the afternoon. No. Do it first thing in the morning. You're wide awake. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Randomly. Oh, Cole the Conqueror. Okay. Do you know Cole the Conqueror? I do from comics, yeah. Well, you know, they made a film of it in the... Oh, no, no, no. Mm. They didn't make a film of it. Right. Do you know? I've never heard of it. I, I misread it as Kroll to begin with. Okay, this is the 1990s. The Conan the Barbarian comes mm. out in, what was it, 84? Mm. Something like that. And although John Melius made a bit of a pig's ear of it, it was successful enough they did a sequel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were going to do a third film in the 90s. And it was based on a Conan book. Mm. And Arnold Schwarzenegger turned it down. Okay, so they got Kevin Sorbo to do it instead, and he was going to play. The original plan was for him to play Conan, right? Just to be a replacement Conan for mm. Schwarzenegger, but because enough time had passed, it was something like eleven years mm. since the previous Conan, mm-hmm. the second Conan, and because Kevin Sorbo said to them, "Look." I'm not all that comfortable with playing the same part as Arnold Schwarzenegger had been playing. So instead, what they did was they took the Conan plot and rewrote it for another of Robert E. Howard's characters. Mm. So actually, Cull the Conqueror is a Conan story with Cull in it. (laughs) Question is, is it any good? Well, at the time, it failed a bit dismally. Mm -hmm. And it came out, I think, a year before DVD was launched. So it never got a DVD release. because It's relatively recent then, not... I'm trying to remember if it was Cole became a, was it DC or was it Atlas? And there was a company called Atlas, which was started up by essentially by the people who used to own Marvel. And they kind of delved back mm. into the into the business and tried to kind of compete with Marvel at their own things. So you had this, um, this company called Atlas sort of appearing in the early 70s. And I'm fairly sure Cole was one of those, unless it was a DC character, I can't remember. It's strange because I'm reading a book at the moment, uh, Marvel The Untold Story. It's just utterly brilliant. If you love Marvel comics, read it. Amazing. 
We have the Starburst Radio podcast for comic talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Call the Conqueror is any good. Well, it failed abysmally when it came out because it fell into that hinterland just before DVD was issued, but also fell into that hinterland where action movies have suddenly become slightly postmodern. Mm. Just after, you know, people are going to hate me for saying this, but Michael Bay reinvented the action movie as an art house movie mm. with Bucks. He took art house production design and art house editing techniques and made action movies that were art house movies with a lot of money and also with a slightly postmodern twist where you'd have characters like Nicolas Cage. Do you remember which was the film which starts off with Nicolas Cage um, banging on about his Beatles LPs? You would never have got that in a Die Hard movie. Mm. And yet here's Michael Bay making action movies where the hero is a Beatles nerd. Right, mm. so action movies have gone slightly postmodern and slightly art house, and Cole the Conqueror is neither postmodern nor art house. What it is is just a really cheesy swords and sorcery movie. But does it fall into that niche of so bad it's good? No, it's not bad. It's great. Okay, it's actually if you <laughs> if you watch it with an old school head on, yeah, it's terrific fun. Watch it on its own merits. It's like a Ray Harryhausen movie without the sort of Harryhausen stuff. You know, you almost sold it to me there until you said without the Harryhausen stuff. <laughs> oh, no, no, there is some Harryhausen stuff in it, but not as much as you'd get in a Harryhausen right, okay. movie. But it is kind of that slightly cheesy, hero's got a twinkle in his eye, you know. He's a Colgate just, ping when he smiles. Is it, yeah. I take it this is a reissue, this is why it's... No, it's not a reissue. It's the first time it's been on DVD. That's what I'm saying. Oh, right. It never got a DVD issue because it came out a year before DVD was launched. And it's one of those things that just became like an oversight. And Mm. the fans of the film have been banging on now for like 15 years. When is this going to come out on DVD? And now it has. And I would highly recommend it because I thought it was just tremendous fun Mm. in an old school kind of a way. Mm. Right. We've got lots to get through. So let's move on. Unconscious. This was known as... That's asking for trouble, isn't it? Well, it was known as something else in America. What was it called? Sleep? No, I can't remember what it was. It's... Did it leave you unconscious, JR? No, it's a film about a guy who wakes up in the aftermath of an accident with his memory gone. Okay. And the first half an hour is... Did you ever see Birth with Nicole Kidman? No. No. Okay, so... Uh, is that the follow-up to Eyes Word Shut? No, okay, I'll t- right. It's a better way of explaining it. If you can imagine a Stanley Kubrick sensibility done by st- somebody who wants to be Stanley Kubrick but isn't. <laughs> okay. This is one of your home movies. <laughs> oh, touche. No. Okay. But what it is is a film that teases you with the fact that you're going to get a payoff. And and payoff. No, no, you do get a payoff. The first half an hour is very, very slow and basically only has two characters in it. So you kind of have to suspend your disbelief mm. an exceptional amount and go with the tone of the movie. But then half an hour into the movie, it takes a step in a different direction. And then your suspension of disbelief has to take that step in that direction with it. 
And it, it basically works, but it left a really bad taste in the mouth because the final twist in the film is basically, by any reading of it, extremely uh, misogynistic. Sounds a bit, um, not in the actual story itself, it sounds a bit from Dust Till Dawn, where you start off thinking it's going to be one kind of film and then it ends up being something very different. Yeah, I guess in some ways you can make that illusion, but it's mm. a very, very different film. Mm. But basically, I'm not going to say what the end of the film is, but basically by the end of the film, it almost seems to be that your reading of the film has to be that the people making it hate women. Mm. Which is, you know, by any token, not really going to leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. Mm. It's mm. a really well-made film. It's a really nicely shot film. It's a really brilliantly acted film mm. but at the end of the film you really walk away from it thinking I'm not really all that happy I invested 80 minutes in that but sometimes you, you get you... films like that where that's the whole point of the film is to make you feel was that intended yeah I don't think it was because mm. the the way it ends is like it happened by accident and the people making it didn't realize that that's what they were doing mm. you know sometimes you get to the end of a film and there's a final twist and the final twist Probably to the people making it seemed like a really clever twist. Mm. But if that final twist at the end of this movie is all women are bitches, you know, actually the cleverness dissipates and mm. all you're left with is no, that's just wrong, 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 wrong. Mm. Mm. So that's unconscious. I gave it six stars because it is really well made, but it's really not a very nice film. Mm. No, okay. Invoked. That's an Irish. Really ultra cheap found footage movie. Four kids end up in a deserted house on a deserted island off the coast of Ireland, and it turns out to be haunted. They would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those damn meddling kids. And I tell you what, they do. It is okay. I was going to leave it at that, but I won't. The first forty-five minutes, none of the writing. I mean, it's brilliantly acted, mm. but none of the writing gives you any kind of clue it's anything other than literally four kids bundled mm. into a car given video cameras and told to film themselves on the road to the island right. it is literally just like a home movie mm. it's poorly shot really well acted so they convince you that that's what they're doing mm-hmm. poorly shot with no reason or rhyme and just what's the dialogue like it's just people saying point that camera the other direction yeah don't stop here for petrol I need a piss <sighs> It's literally that. Yeah. And somebody says at one point, oh, we're all going to die, which is supposed to be foreshadowing the fact that they all die. Mm. But I mean, you don't, you know, it's just like, you throw that line in there and it's just so obviously foreshadowing mm. when the rest of it is so obviously just crap. Mm. It's like nobody wrote, I don't know if anybody, I don't know if they had a script. Mm. I don't know if they just went off and filmed it without a script. And sometimes that can work. Mm. Yeah. If you work with the actors and work mm-hmm. through the scenes so yeah. that the actors know where the scenes are going. If you don't going. leave it till the and day, edit, you film it. And then yeah. actually edit yeah. well. Yeah. Make sure you get the... But with this, it just literally felt like they sat mm-hmm. down in a car with a camera and no, said, right, let's really. film this for 20 minutes and mm-hmm. we'll use a couple mm-hmm. of those minutes in the film. And then mm-hmm. when you get to the island and the ghosts turn up, they're all out of Ringu or the ring. Okay. Mm. And it's just like, oh, you've thrown that in because you like the ring, right? Mm. And the last 10 minutes is actually genuinely spooky. But it's only spooky because it's stolen from the ring. 
you know if you thought if you thought yeah, the ring was scary riffs, yeah. yeah you'll yeah. be as scared for the last 10 minutes of this but you'll have had to sit through the other hour and a quarter to get to it <laughs> so yeah that was not recommended how many stars I think I gave it four actually for the yeah. last 10 minutes mm. because the last 10 minutes did genuinely scare okay. me but I get, but like I say you got to sit through the rest yeah. of it to get to it and they stole those scares from somewhere else mm. Mm. and it's only because those scares were such effective scares that they still worked this other time yeah. War Pigs uh, it's a great tune oh not it's Niles no War Pigs Black Sabbath yeah Sabbath, Sabbath. It's I don't ask me about Metal. And Faith No More covered it as well. I think. Yeah. It's, was it not from the same album as Paranoid or the yeah, album before or after? Or the same period yeah, as Paranoid? Yeah. Um, it's a cheap war film. Mm. It's uh, If you go in expecting lots of action, you're going to be a bit disappointed because it's a cheap war film, so there's not a great deal of action. Which war is it saying? Second World. Okay. But is it Second World? It's a couple of weeks now since I've watched it. Yeah, Second World War. It's just, <laughs> it, but it's like a, so so it's cheap. It's a so character there's, piece. There's a lot of talky. Yeah. It's not. It is a character piece, but it's the characters aren't painted in as well mm. as you might hope. Mm. But having said that, I watched it and I enjoyed it from start to finish, and you know I accepted at the start that it was going to be a cheap war film, mm. so it wasn't going to be Saving Private Ryan, and nothing about it disappointed me. Mm. So, in the end, I have to recommend it. I have to say, lower your expectations so that you're not expecting a bridge too far. Mm. And if you like war films, okay. and, it's, and it's a fairly unreconstructed war film, it is mm. not one of these films that takes, again, that word, a sort of postmodern slant where they're trying to tell you something about, you know, the, the quality of the human species through a war film, mm. it's not doing that. It's just telling a story. Mm. And it tells it quite effectively. And, you know, the people who are in it engage you across the way. And I couldn't really fault it for anything that it did. It didn't excite me. But by the same, same token, it didn't disappoint me. So mm. in the end, I had to recommend it. Mm -hmm. Finally, Accidental Love. Which is... Uh, Sounds like a letter from Sharak Jeez. It's... His original title wasn't Accidental Love. It was... That's oh, pretty, God. I'm sorry, that's a pretty bad title, isn't it? It really is. That is like a really <laughs> bad... I don't know. It's the director of Three Kings. Is it? Really? Okay. God, it sounds like a 1980s Paul Abdul mm. record. And it's a month since <laughs> I've watched it and written the review, and his name's gone out of my head. Oh. And it is 11 o'clock at night. And oh, I want to say Spike Jones, but he's in it, isn't he, rather than directing? Yeah, Three Spike Kings. Jones is in Three Kings. Yeah. He, um, oh, my God. What love isn't accidental? The the guy who directed Three Kings. Oh, my God, this is killing me now. <laughs> I know, quite, I can see his name above the title of the film. Sorry, Joe, you can yeah. edit it in afterwards. No, that's not going to work, <laughs> is it? The guy who directed Three Kings has a bit of a reputation for uh, being quite combative on set. Mm. And in fact, a video escaped the other year of him having a real go, one of the actresses in the film that he followed Three Kings up with, mm. the name of which escapes me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a memorable director of memorable films. Right, but since then he did... I remember liking Three Kings. 
Oh yeah, Three Kings is wonderful. And since then, actually, he's done a couple of really mainstream films, the names of which escape me, but both of which you would absolutely know because they're quite mainstream. But between Three Kings and these two mainstream films, he did uh, a film in the style of Charlie Kaufman. Okay. And Accidental Love was supposed to be another film in the style of Charlie Kaufman. Mm -hmm. But, oh, David... David O. Russell. Okay. Is it David O. Russell or David... No, it's David O. Russell, yeah. He does this, and this is in the style of the other film that's... It's basically in the Charlie Kaufman style. Mm -hmm. It's one of those films which uh, takes things from a slightly odd slant with a slightly skewed version of the characters, Mm. but everybody in the film is all playing at the same level. And it takes an idea... That is just a ridiculous idea and treats it as, you know, with perfect seriousness. So the film starts with this girl and this fella on a date. And during the course of this date, they go to the restaurant where um, the restaurant's getting ready for uh, some celebration or something the following day. Some guys, or redecorating or something, some guys on a stepladder with a nail gun, putting nails into... And it falls off the ladder and accidentally leaves a staple in this girl's head. And because she doesn't have insurance, nobody will take the staple out. So the rest of the film, this girl's got a staple in her head. Okay. Which, yeah, okay, you've got a sort of screwed up face. But in a screwball comedy, that's the kind of... In a screwball comedy after the fashion of a Charlie Kaufman film... That's just the beginning for an entirely different story. And actually, Accidental Love, the name of which was originally planned, escapes me. It's actually... stationary. It's actually about politics. It's... (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the obvious... uh, It starts off with a date... Mm. But the date is only how she gets this staple in her head. Mm. Right. And the rest of the film is politics. And it all takes place in Washington. Mm -hmm. And it's a mad screwball comedy. takes place in Washington in the milieu of politics. Uh, But there were various problems with the production of the movie. The funding fell through four times. The... Various things, all sorts of things. You can look it up on Wikipedia and find out more. In the end, there were so many problems with the production of it. David O. Russell, I think he finished the filming because it all looks like him, Mm. walked away from it and took his name off it. So it's now come out under an alternative name, Accidental Love, with a made-up name of the director on it. But And so it's kind of brushed under the carpet. It was actually finished about five years ago and it's only just come out now. Are there any recognisable names in it, or are they all... Oh, yeah, there's loads of recognisable names in it, all of which escaped me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a month when I reviewed this, and it's quarter past 11 Mm. at night, and my brain's just died. So do you think that... that I keep going on about the title. The title was just some bloke at a desk, and they said, I'll think of a title for it for it to go out. No, the thing is, it's been sitting on a shelf for five years, and they've said, we're not going to run this with politics. Let's, Let's, in the publicity, let's bring up the love story angle. Because obviously... Part of the whole politics thing is sexual politics as well. So mm. there's sexual politics throughout the film too. Mm. So in the advertising, 
you know, the poster, the name of the film, everything else. Mm. They've heightened the romantic aspect of it okay. and tried to bury the political aspect of it. Is the film it. actually any good? Bloody good. Mm. Really? If you like Three Kings, I mean, if you like Three Kings, it is utterly, entirely different from Three Kings. Mm. But it is a really good film. And mm. if you like Three Kings, you probably will like this. Mm. But don't approach it as a... Don't approach it as a romantic comedy because it is anything but a romantic comedy. So is that not a massive oversight from their part trying to market it that way? Well, the thing is, it's five years out of date. Mm. You know, all these politics that are in it, it's almost like a period piece now. Mm. I mean, Mm. you know, politics is universal and ongoing and timeless. But by the same token, when you make a political film, even if you're making... Even, say, for example, Nixon by... um, That bloke. Oliver Stone. Yeah. It might have been about something that happened 30 years before it was made, Mm. but what informed it was what was happening in the politics at the time. And exactly the same thing with Accidental Love. The story it tells about politics is timeless and universal Mm. to politics, but is informed by what was happening in politics five years ago. So it's kind of lost its window. But I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who likes Three Kings or likes... Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you what, likes, um, well, yeah, Charlie Kaufman. If you like Charlie Kaufman films, Mm -hmm. this is very much in that same ballpark. So is that your pick of the films, if you had to just narrow it down to one? Yeah, Accidental Love and Cull the Conqueror. I absolutely enjoyed every last minute of Cull the Conqueror from start to finish. Mm. That was just tremendous fun. Mm -hmm. Unreconstructed tremendous fun. And Accidental Love is very much reconstructed because it is exceptionally <laughs> postmodern, but in the best way. So, yeah, I'd recommend those two. I would be fascinated to hear what you make of Fantastic Four. Not that I've seen it yet. The new one? Yeah. It looks really dull. Mm, mm. It does, does sound like a bit of a slog. Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of reconstructed. I read a, an article today, an article of sorts on, on the net today, and it, essentially it was dissecting the trailer, the fact that somebody went back to the original trailer and discovered that 90% of the trailer doesn't actually appear in the film. So there's tons. Mm. It's about 20 to... Is it between 20 I'm and 40 sure minutes? I read somewhere that the, things, um, yeah. the principal actors still hadn't seen a cut of the movie mere days before it actually went out, mm. which tends to make you a bit worried. And yeah. uh, mine and Simon's, and your actually, Jail, mutual friend Dave Davis, formerly of Tower of Technobabble, mm. a huge Marvel fan, um, he wanted to write a blog post about it, but was so underawed that he couldn't even bring himself to, to write about it. And as he said in, in his little Facebook post, you know, that, that sums it up really. It's lost a ton of money. Mm. His, his criticism was that the one of the appeals of it was that they were a family and in this film they barely know each other. That was my point from the start, as mm. soon as I heard. The, funny, we, I don't know if we had that discussion about the, um, a film, a film, you know, accidental love. It, what is the film about? You know, is it is it about that love story? No, it's not. Mm. You know, and... Um, I think I said before I was chatting to the uh, author Andy Lane, the guy who does the the young Sherlock novels, and he was talking about you know like Terminator. Is Terminator about a robot that goes back into the past? No, it's not. It's about a relationship between a boy and his father. It's that same sort of that same sort of thing. And and the mm. whole point of Fantastic Four is family. Yeah. 
and they took that element out of it. Well, yeah. well, they took that element out of it in the other films from ten years ago, didn't they? No, not really. Did they not? I can't remember. I mean, yeah, it was it was it was a very kind of a low they level did a family romp. thing. Yes. Yes. And that's the thing. I suppose you can take the family thing out as long as A, you replace it with something else, and B, you don't lose the tone. But if mm. you take out the tone and the content, what are you left with? It looks mm. very bleak from just having seen the trailer. I mean, I'm given all this just from the trailers. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> you know, but... quite, I'd quite happily review the film, but that means I've got to pay for a ticket. And I don't... <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but... Well, his superhero films seem to have dichotomized into two separate camps mm. now. You either do it really bleak and dark, and everything else. or else you do it fun. Yeah. And I don't know, is it, it's not just me, but I, if I, the only superhero films I like are the ones that are fun. Mm. You know, Superman 3 is my favourite Superman film. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, by far my favourite Superman film. It actually creeped me out when I saw it. Mm. The bit where the woman gets turned into yes, a robot. Yes, me too. Really I had the, I had the um, comic of it. When yes. I was a kid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It really freaked me out. But the rest of the film, I mean, you know, there's some. There's got some Richard Pryor in it. What's not to like about? Yeah. That? There's some ostensibly dark stuff in there where mm. Superman gets split off into mm, the, yeah. mm. and that could have been that could have, you know in the hands of Christopher Nolan that could have been the dullest thing you'd ever seen. But in the hands of was it Richard Fleischer who did that one? I can't remember. That's sure. about right. Yeah. But in the hands of whoever it was who did that mm. film, it that bit was just ridiculous and stupid <laughs> and funny and entertaining and great. Yeah. Wow, I thought I was the only person who liked Superman three. I don't know. I, no, I, I well, obviously compared to Superman four, it's I've but, never I've never managed yeah. all the way through Superman four. So. See, the thing about comics is, even when the comics taking itself ostensibly seriously, mm, yeah. it's still a comic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And if you're going to transfer it to the Cinema, you know, I will always say that if you're going to adapt something from one medium to another, mm. you have to take account of the medium that you're adapting it into. But by the same token, you don't want you can lose plot mm. and you can lose characters, but what you don't want to lose is the tone. Mm. And so, by when you transfer a comic strip into the movies, that what you want to keep is the tone of the comic, and even if the comic has a fairly serious tone as a comic, that's still as a comic. Mm. So you want to make sure that once it gets to the pictures, it's still fun. Because one of the reasons why people like comics is because you turn the page not knowing what's on mm. the next page, yeah. and you have fun looking at the panels, seeing mm. what the pictures are. Mm. You know, the way that transfers into the movies is a lightness of touch. Mm-hmm. You know, so that even if you know the story already, the tone is light enough that the performances will surprise you. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing about, you know, the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins sort of version of comic books is mm-hmm. that nothing in them surprises you ever. No. And that's what it sounds like they've done with Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. right? It's it's interesting. Um, I can't think who reviewed it for Starburst. They gave it an 8 out of 10. Mm. Um, and what was interesting about that review is they didn't. I don't think they mentioned comics once, so there was no preconception. So they treated it just as a film, and in that respect, I think they quite enjoyed it. Yeah. And you know, I, well, found, I gave I it found, eight out of ten. I should hope so. Well, yes. <laughs> um, but what it did for me was it made me think. Right, when I do see it, I will make my own mind up about it. I'm not going to mm. assume uh, an awful lot of people who were just taking it from the viewpoint as oh, I love the comic, I can't stand the film. Well, you know. It's no point in approaching in that respect because it's not been treated in that respect. But I use the analogy on Facebook that um, I, I related to the guy who'd been chucked off 
uh, Great British Bake Off, which is a TV series over here in the UK. Uh, basically, one of these reality shows where you get a bunch of bakers, and every every week somebody gets chucked off for making. I don't think you need to cakes. explain Great British Bake Off to people listening to this podcast, Simon. <laughs> well, no, obviously they're American listeners. And they it's get the huge show. on Twitter, Simon. There's people in the states. Yeah, who well, okay, well but yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yes, but the the guy who got chucked off this week was a guy who came came to the the floor. They said, right, we want a classic Madeira cake. So he decided to stick chocolate in it and turned it into something other than a Madeira cake, and then and then couldn't quite work out why he got chucked off the show. So, and it's the same sort of thing. You 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 come to the film. This is a film about Madeira cake. So what do you get? You get a chocolate cake, and you can get chocolate Madeira cake. Yeah, but I think he changed it to the point where they didn't actually recognise it as a Madeira yeah, cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, and the the basic thing. So you either approach it and say, "Is this a nice cake? Does it taste nice?" But if you're expecting a Madeira cake, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Where Fantastic Four falls down is not necessarily people who are expecting a Fantastic Four film. Yeah. But people who know that Fantastic Four is a Marvel property and are expecting a Marvel film. Mm. Yeah. So, I don't, you know, in that respect, it doesn't make any difference that they took the family thing out because people who don't know the story wouldn't necessarily know that that was missing. Mm. But people who don't know the story might have been expecting something like Iron Man 3 um, would have been a bit shocked to discover that they were getting Batman buggers off. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, though, I did, it did make me think of that character in the Fast Show. You know, the guy where his wife always sends him out to do the shopping, and she says, "Oh, did you did you get the tin tomatoes?" He goes, "Even better than that, I got a speedboat." You know, and it's the same, <laughs> nice. It's the same thing. No, you're thinking of Jazz Club. Oh yeah, I just threw that in. <laughs> You did but that. you know, I, I've got nothing, and I've had this discussion. I've got nothing against people taking a property and doing something, you know, creative with it. Mm. Yes, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter because someone else would do it. But now you've got people talking, saying, "Well, I don't think the Fantastic Four can work on the big screen, and that's why it never works." It's like, no, it isn't. It just needs the right person and exactly, the right screen. Yeah, yeah. I don't know actually whether I don't agree with that in a tiny respect. In that there are. You know, you can take any story and adapt it to any medium, right? Mm. But some story... How am I going to put this into words? There, there are some stories where the, the actual basis, the actual foundation of the story mm. is in that medium. Mm. It's You know what I was saying, right... Oh, before we started recording, but it would be an Easter egg on the end about the Lego movie being a story about Lego. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it work so brilliantly. Something like, and I don't know comics well enough, but I get the impression slightly that Fantastic Four is a cartoon strip or comic strip, whatever way you want to phrase it. It's a comic strip about being a comic strip. Am I even remotely right about that? Because that's the impression I've always had. Because the way it was born... Mm. Is, is it Stan Lee? Yes. And Stan Lee was on the verge of leaving comic strips. Mm. And I think his wife said to him, if you're going to leave comic strips, go out in a blaze of glory. Mm. And instead of compromising and doing all the comic strips that you wanted to think people wanted to read, do the comic strip that you want to write. Mm. And he wrote Fantastic Four. And I think that informs it in that he has written a comic strip about his love of comic strips. And so I think perhaps Fantastic Four only genuinely works as a comic strip for that reason. 
Mm -hmm. So while I'm not saying that you can't take the basic framework of it and adapt it to another medium, perhaps that's why people are struggling to do that, because taking the framework isn't the same as taking the heart and soul of something. Mm. Okay, okay. There's certain elements which... which, But I think it's a good rule. Yeah. What I'm saying is occasionally you'll get something that's the exception to the rule, and maybe this is it. Mm. I think it's one thing to bring it a different take on a franchise it's another thing to completely remove the part that actually makes it well, that franchise what yeah. I will say to its uh, well, it's not to its benefit but it, it seems to be based on um, a, a later version of the Fantastic Four where, the, where Marvel did these Ultimate mm-hmm. series where they took the character and they put him into a different situation did a different spin on it they've done it and with Spider-Man haven't they yeah Ultimate Spider-Man this mm-hmm. was Ultimate Fantastic Four and it's very much based on that mm-hmm. a lot of in in what happens but they still manage to kind of that cock it up yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> alright and because it's now getting on Andy Taylor said only recently got into podcasts and after hearing yours I've decided to listen from the beginning uh-huh. I'm sure I've heard this email before no we get we've no, had they, emails like this quite yeah mm, people do this listener. with us I don't know really? why but they, yeah two listeners but oh. people do apparently seem is. to like going back to the start of the blue box podcast oh, and dear, doing the journey no, don't do that don't do that <laughs> it's like wait well, until time comes he says a long process but very enjoyable mark oh are you sure it's the blue box podcast listening? and actually we had a conversation and he was up to our eric saywood episode oh. so he was about a but he was about i think that would make him about a third of the way through maybe mm. halfway through uh, he hasn't reached your interview with George Lucas then. He says, for me, it's the best podcast I've heard and leaves me laughing out loud, often to the amusement of work colleagues. Keep up the good work, guys. Oh, that's very kind of him to say so. Oh, it's a shame we're not intentionally funny. <laughs> Tim Gambrell, or Gambrell. What are we saying? Gambrell or Gambrell? Gambrell. Gambrell. Tim Smith says, dear Blue Box Casters, I've been enjoying your Doctor Who-related ramblings of late, so thanks for those. I particularly enjoyed your Season 11 assessment, although I didn't agree with a lot of it. I was very surprised (laughs) that not all of you there in your little blue box had watched the stories recently. How can you comment objectively on something that you haven't watched for years and years? Shame on you. It's no wonder the Monster of Peladon did so badly because people just rely on the same old standard grumbles and focus on risable design decisions rather than on the performances or the whole viewing experience. I know I'm in a minority in really liking the Monster of Peladon, but I also think it's easy to just disregard something that you haven't seen since it came out on video back in the 18th century or whatever. <laughs> but then, I'm also charmed by the idea of watching Death of the Daleks as a small child and thinking it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I had a similar experience with Destiny of the Daleks as a five-year-old and will usually back it to the hilt in the same way. Yeah. But coming to death after the event, all I can see is some very lazy direction with silly music that diffuses any threat and then a lot of good stuff going on underneath. I look forward to being able to contribute more meaningfully in advance of your season 12 assessment when that came when that comes around. Oops. Yeah, we just did that one a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> On the follow-up to the Missing Episodes podcast, you were discussing when this whole affair might be over. 
But you guys, like those on the forums as far as I've seen, are still focusing solely on Doctor Who. Hasn't Phil Morris said often enough that his quest may have started with Doctor Who, but is now about all archive TV? Mm. Surely then he's likely to wait for a reveal when he's got everything of everything he thinks he's likely to obtain, rather than a lump of Doctor Who and then possibly at a later date some other stuff. As JR said, if he's going for a place in TV history, he'll want to have one massive reveal of everything. I appreciate the view that if he's found Doctor Who, he's likely to have found as much of anything else as he can too, but I think we easily succumb to tunnel vision on this matter and forget that there's a wider picture beyond mm. our 97. Which is a good point. Yeah, very good. By the way, says Tim, that Sharak jizz, he's a right dirty ticket, isn't he? <laughs> no comment. It's a it's a fair comment about the uh, not not watching the episodes, but we have. It's not an excuse; it's a reason. I don't know why yeah. you're apologising for this. You're the one who usually does. I know. I do try to. I do try to just to refresh it in my in my mind. But we have busy family lives. But and that's not an excuse. Edit. Yes, books to and edit. magazine columns mm. to write. Ah, it's no excuse. And I think, you know, we're fairly straight up. If we haven't watched it recently, then we'll say. So, you know, you can Actually, immediately... usually that's the first thing we talk about. It is, yeah. So you can <laughs> immediately gauge that, you know, of how the sort of clarity we'd have. And usually there's at least one of us who has watched it recently, so... I think, actually, that's what our podcasts are about. Our impressions of the stories based upon the last time we saw them. Mm. Which is why, usually, when we do those podcasts, we have a lot of readers' comments... You know, so we get their impressions too. So you get a bit of a sort of variety mm. of comments from people who've watched them in various degrees of recentness. Mm. Mm. I had no idea how that sentence was going to end when I started, <laughs> and I'm not sure I managed. Anyway, next week, are you going to be able to make it next week, Mark? Next Tuesday, try. same time and place. Next try. week. Well, if we can get Lee to come along as well, otherwise it might just be me and Simon if you can't mm. make it. Next week is our non-genre film side box sidebar thing. Yeah, it's oh, tricky because I only ever watched science fiction and fantasy. I'm sure you can think of things that you've watched. Oh yeah, I have got one. I'd hey, love look, to talk about. That's non-genre. When I say non-genre, I mean not fantasy, sci-fi, or horror. Not in the Starburst sandbox. Documentary as well. Well, I prefer to keep it to fiction, but if oh. you want to go documentary, that's... yeah, why not? Yeah, that's kind of outside the parameters, really, but that's a Is different it? kind of a thing, really, isn't mm. it? Okay. If you're absolutely desperate, I'm desperate to talk about <laughs> <film>. <clears throat> Is it Michael Moore film? No. Mm. Hey, there's plenty of, you know, you'll be surprised that we've plenty of things you've seen. James Bond, I suppose, or I don't know, classics. Okay, for this one, then I'll allow you to go back to before 1963, if you so desire. No, no, no. all right, Mark, you think of three, <laughs> and if you can make it, bring them along. Alrighty, so next time we won't be talking about anything that has anything to do with anything Starburst usually talk about. What could possibly go wrong? Until then, I was JR. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.
licensed for Fantastic Four has been all over the place since the 70s. Yeah, Spider-Man too. Mm. I bet Marvel stopped making Fantastic Four comics now just to spite Fox. I'm sure I read that somewhere. Mm. Well, maybe they thought it was going to damage the line, yeah. to be honest. I'm sure I read that somewhere. They, um... I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I watched the Lego movie. Mm. And I watched Paddington the movie. And I haven't seen Paddington yet. Amy said she said she really liked it. Didn't lend it to you. Oh, Paddington! I thought it was. I thought the tone was slightly adrift. Couldn't. And people have been saying it's Nicole Kidman. Mm. I don't think it's that. I think the tone of the whole film is slightly adrift. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. Yes, I agree completely. And so the humour. Well, everything about it, humour, the, the characters. The charming elements are gorgeous, like yeah. the house and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden there's this. there has to be a threat. I don't really understand. But it's not even that. It's like the characterisation. You're not quite sure how far into caricature. Mm. It's like the actors aren't quite sure how mm. far into caricature they want to go. Mm. And so, it's, so there's this kind of weird tonal thing where you're never quite sure. Are you supposed to be empathising? The director should have sat them all down and just said, look, this is what we're aiming for, and nobody seems to really know, so they're just all pitching it slightly differently. Yeah, no, I think they're all pitching it at the same place, Mm. but I think they're all pitching it at this weird in-between place that doesn't quite catch anything. I've yet to see it, so... Yeah, no, you'll know... When you see it, you'll know what I mean. The whole thing is consistent, but it's sort of Mm. consistently in a really odd place. quite. Yeah. Yeah. it's like the cartoon version. That was absolutely brilliantly pitched. Yes, yes. And this isn't pitched in quite the same place as the animated version. <clears throat> so I, I, I took took Freya and Amelia. <clears throat> Amelia being about because she might have been at three or four. Mm-hmm. No, she was four when she saw it. And she the bit at the end with the chimney and everything like that and the, and the peril. And it was too much for her. Mm. Yeah. That shouldn't happen in a painting yeah. film. I didn't think that was too bad, actually, although obviously I'm not watching it with a three or a yeah. four-year-old. So. Mm. But I thought, I didn't think they overstretched that. I was kind of, When they kind of got up to the bit on the roof and that, I was thinking, oh, God, you know, if James Cameron was doing this, you'd have 60 minutes of this. And I was expecting, <laughs> I was expecting 10 or 15, and it yeah. was over and done in about five. Yeah. And I thought, that's not, that's okay. Mm. You can give kids that amount of peril for five minutes, and mm. that's not too bad. But I can see your point. Mm. It'd probably be better for six and seven-year-olds than sort of four-year-olds. Or was whatever. it Chris Columbus? No, I don't know who it was. I can't think. Mm. It was that sort of level, wasn't it? Yeah. If, um... Have you got the BFI app? No. Because they do an app for, I suppose it's more for parents, but for anyone who wants to go and see a film. And it doesn't, it'll tell you if there's going to be spoilers in the description, but it will give you a breakdown of what to expect. What to expect if you're going to take a kid to see a film. So mm-hmm. you can look it up by film and it will tell you oh, there's peril, like the, in this, peril in this bit. Or, it you know, wasn't like the Christian it wasn't too app bad. in she America. Wasn't sad, What's that? In America, they have, and you can get this on certain UK review sites. They have the, um, I don't know what they're called, the MCA or something. Mm. I don't know what they're called, the Christian Alliance. We'll go and watch every film and let you know whether there's going to be girl-on-girl kissing, the flash of nipple, the Just, use of the word shit, all this kind of stuff. There'll be a big list of everything you can American expect in the version of film. the Channel 4 Red Triangle, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, basically. <laughs> Mark, the Red Triangle? Yeah, more this way if you time. can, so that you're opposite Simon, that's better. Yes, dear. Yeah, but it's just that, that way... The sound that way madness lies. 
Lego movie, yeah. fantastic story. Mm. But do you know what I thought the problem with that was? Mm. And I think it's a 9 out of 10 movie, but I don't mm. think it's a 10 out of 10 movie. The story's brilliant because mm. what it does is, you know, and I've often said this about things like Doctor Who, if you didn't take a story, you need to make sure that story is appropriate to your subject matter. Mm-hmm. And the whole plot of it was entirely appropriate to Lego. Yeah. Fantastic mm. story. Mm-hmm. Same probably... writers who were writing Han Solo, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Brilliant. Mm. And um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Have you ever yeah. seen that? That's a great no, film. but it's really good. Yeah. Yes. But you know what I thought the problem with the Lego movie was? Mm. Too well made. Yeah, that's a real problem, isn't it? It's slick, isn't it? And I <laughs> did. It was information overload. I've yet to watch it without and know that I've kind of absorbed Oh, it no, not that. I mean, it's too well animated. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I was expecting it to be slight because it's Lego. Yeah. I was expecting it to be slightly clunkier, and I think because it's a great movie. Mm. But I tell you what, it's not. It's not a charming movie. There no. are little touches, like the the spaceman. I forget the character's name now. Oh yeah, no, no. His, there's his loads helmet's of... got a sort of break in the bottom part of the helmet, which yeah. ha- used to happen to all of them when yeah, you had them as yeah. kids. Oh really? Yeah. yeah, no. It's got lots of nice touches like that. Mm. Benny, but unlike Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. Which, because of the animation, is just mm. absolutely charming. Mm. Oh, I'm glad you right? liked it. I'm glad you liked it. The Lego movie has mm. got everything except mm. that sort of old school charm that you would have thought with Lego it would have had. Mm. So it's like a, a, it's like Paddington is like a seven out of ten. Lego is a nine out of ten. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a ten out. Of 10. Oh, I'm so glad. But so glad. it's not a kids' film. No, uh, it's a film. Mm. No, not because of the cussing. Not because of that. <laughs> cussing is brilliant. I take it you've seen it, Mark. No, I haven't. Yeah, we used to have it. Um, There's an awful lot of that in it. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen it hundreds of times, but it used to be on, you know, showing. On it's, no, it's not that. It's because the humour is so adult. It's and the Wes, a- Wes Anderson thing, where he most of his humour doesn't come in the form of jokes, but comes in the form of ironic edits Mm -hmm. like if somebody's talking about one thing he Mm -hmm. will edit away to another scene where something is going on that's that's not that's not the opposite of what's just been said but that ironically informs what's Mm, just been said and he does that all the time Mm. and i don't think you could expect six-year-olds to follow no no but it works because i can sit and watch it with all ages and oh yeah i bet you can yeah and that's what's so brilliant about it because kids can watch it but it is but it's not a kids' movie that adults can enjoy. It's an adult movie that yeah. kids can enjoy, yeah. and it was fantastic. Yeah, that was a real pleasant surprise. That well, not really a surprise. You no, big deal. No, but yeah, you didn't know how people take to it. Well, they get it or they don't. Nothing. <laughs> right. It looks like there's no chance of Lee arriving now, and I don't think he's texted me back. No. I know, he's off in LA, he's not going to turn up now. Should we do a podcast then? Mm -hmm. Go on then.